This week on the show, we're going to be interviewing Alex Rosenberg to discuss his work on LLVM Clang and his work with BSD at a large console gaming company. Hint, it wasn't Microsoft. All this and all the latest BSD news is coming your way right now. episode 122, The BSD Black Box, recorded December 30th, 2015. Hey, I'm your host, Chris Moore. And I'm Alan Jude. Yeah, we're glad to have you guys with us. This is kind of a, a weird week sandwiched right in between Christmas and New Year's. So uh, we have a really exciting interview for you guys, though, which is uh, considered our holiday treat, a little late Christmas present. So I think you guys will enjoy that. And we'll be uh, recording that here shortly. But of course, we do have some news to get to today and a lot of beastie bits. We're going to go through those rapid fire and kind of just cap off the end of 2015. So we should probably just get straight into it here. So first up, we have a story uh, written about a life with an OpenBSD laptop, a Unix lover's tale of migrating away from the Mac, the good, the bad, and the mm -hmm. ugly. So tell us a little bit about this, Alan. I think this was on the New York City bug yes. site. That's where this got uh, Yeah, so this was a talk uh, given at the New York City BSD user group. Uh, by Ike uh, or uh, Isaac Levy, who's an OpenBSD user uh, who works on networking infrastructure mostly. Uh, so he's mm -hmm. given a couple of talks about that type of thing. Uh, and, you know, being a heavy BSD users for networking and so on, uh, but he still used a, a Mac for his, his uh, you know, everyday work on his laptop. And so sure. he's uh, gives a talk here about actually transitioning to using OpenBSD on his laptop. Uh, so yeah, he notes that, you know, he's not actually a committer on any of the BSDs. He's just been a user since 1999. Uh, and he's kind of new to living with OpenBSD rather than just using it for work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, so he kind of walks through some of what happened and, you know, talking about getting his first computer, <laughs> that whole Apple commercial, oh, way back. <laughs> uh, <Yep. laughs> next station or whatever, uh, when OS ten came out, and so on, mm. uh, gives a quick background on what OpenBSD is. Has this um, <laughs> amazing uh, diagram of um, two PF routers uh, using CART for failover with PF Sync to keep state. Uh, this is <laughs> the craziest diagram I've ever seen, but it's awesome. Um, but he talks about, uh, you know, how to pick the hardware for his working laptop, basically going from his MacBook to a Lenovo, mm -hmm. um, getting that actually working, you know, knowing, you know, he bought uh, OpenBSD on DVD or CD, you know, used the man pages and the how-tos on the website, uh, you know, talked a bit about hardware compatibility, asking around other people and so on. Uh, but what he spent, uh, some interesting ideas about the future where there might be ARM or MIPS laptops that, uh, could be interesting. Mm. Yeah, that mm. would be. But then he goes on to actually doing it talking about, you know, going through the installer, just following the instructions, uh, using the package, uh, add utility on OpenBSD to install binary packages. 
the dealing with uh, wireless and you know the binary blobs and all that kind of thing. Uh, dealing with upgrading packages and upgrading uh, this base system itself, separate from the packages. Uh, mm -hmm. Power management and actually getting that working. Dealing with suspend and resume and battery life and all that kind of thing. And then he's like, what else do you need? And closes his laptop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah. Uh, talks a bit more about it. Uh, has some screenshots here of different uh, window manager setups that he tried. Uh, kind of give you an idea of what you could uh, have and so you can decide what you like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of a mix with TWM and other stuff or you could always, you know, just use KDE or GNOME or whatever. Uh, he decided to stick with XFCE. Uh, he talks a bit about using Tmux and stuff, especially, you know, with dealing with routers and stuff where you're on serial all the time. Uh, he says the most daunting parts for uh, coming from being a Mac user were uh, looking at which web browser to use, you know, Firefox and uh, or Chromium. And especially now mm -hmm. that uh, YouTube is HTML5 for the video on demand means that no more flash craziness. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> using Thunderbird or Claws for email and so on, and just package ad for all of those rather than trying to build Firefox because that would take a while. Mm -hmm. um, he talks a bit about why he settled on XFCE, uh, but he says these biggest uh, things that he took for granted when he had a Mac uh, that he doesn't have now were a journaling file system. You know, every time you do an mm -hmm. unclean shutdown, having to do a full FSCK instead of having the system just come back up, that is a limitation of... Hopefully he's not doing too many right. of those. Uh, and, you know, that was on the list of things that OpenBSD wanted to uh, inherit from FreeBSD's uh, fast file system was our journaling because that makes a big difference, especially, you know, your laptop maybe doesn't have a huge hard drive. But if it's a spinning mm -hmm. one, it might be a low RPM one to try to save battery. Sure, and, and then, RPM. you know, that makes it that much more painful. Mm -hmm. uh, UTF-8 and Unicode everywhere, especially with grep. Although I think since this talk, OpenBSD's had a hackathon specifically about that. And maybe that's improved somewhat now. Cool. He also uh, missed being able to sync pictures and contacts with his phone. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. assuming that meant he had an iPhone because... If you have a not an iPhone, it usually can just show up as USB mass storage and you can just copy files to it. You can do that. Yeah. Uh, but syncing contacts is special software. Syncing contacts is, is uh, a bit more of a thing. Um, mm -hmm. Then he was comparing the music that comes on an iPhone versus what you get with OpenBSD. Since every OpenBSD release has a little song, which is quite mm -hmm. entertaining. Uh, then he talks about actually dealing with other stuff like using Samba for file sharing and setting up his auto mounter and security and so on. Uh, mentions that he hasn't actually tried to print anything, which can be problematic. Um, okay. yeah. I solved that for myself by buying a network printer that can just do mm -hmm. like IPP or whatever and uh, manage to print and even scan from PCBSD. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that's what I do with my brother here. It's quite nice. Um and yeah, he says, you know, there's many things to love about using OpenBSD and uh, he's actually going to maybe try out uh, some of the other BSDs as well just to see what's going on. Hmm. Okay, nice. Well, we'll have to see if he follows that mm -hmm. up with another article about other BSDs Indeed. and how those work on his laptop. 
Okay, well, speaking of some of the other BSDs, we got some news here about Dragonfly. Man, these guys just uh, keep on rapidly advancing mm-hmm. in their DRM support. Looks like they've now brought in support all the way from Linux 4.0. So this just landed. We have the commit message here if you want to take a look at it. But some of the notable features, we'll just go through these, is they've added basic Skylake support. So that's, wow, right on the cutting edge yeah, there. Yeah, it's the newest uh, processor that comes out. Uh, so there was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Sandy Ridge and Ivy Ridge. Uh, and then we had Haswell, and then Broadwell, and Broadwell. now Skylake. That's right. So, yeah, they've caught up to that. Also, Panel Self-Refresh. We talked about that many episodes ago where they added that initial support. Um, that's now supported on Valley View and Cherry Which View. I think are the Atom Low Power Processors. Yeah, I believe so, which would make mm-hmm. sense. That's where you'd want it to because that's all about saving yep. some battery life. Um, they did preparations for atomic display updates and also some performance improvements on various GPU families, including Cherry View, Broadwell, and Haswell. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Also, uh, they mentioned here GPU frequencies are now kept at a minimum of 450 megahertz when possible on Haswell and Broadwell, which kind of ensures a minimum experience level for various Yeah, types otherwise of uh, it might clock it down so much that your graphics performance would get really bad and then you'd be like, why mm-hmm. is my computer chugging all of a sudden? It's like, oh, it's yeah, trying to save some battery. Nope, no, 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 no. Um, also, he said, I've improved reset support for some Gen 3 and 4 GPUs, which fixes some OpenGL crashes on Core 2 and the pre-2012 Atom mm-hmm. machines. So even some and fixes uh, for older hardware in there. Yeah, yeah, and they also included some fixes for audio over HDMI mm-hmm. as well. So if you've got an HDMI monitor, that may be of interest. And, of course, he mentioned some usual small bug fixes and stability improvements. So, dang, these guys are really on top of it yeah. as far as their DRM code. So uh, very good. And we need to we need to get in touch with Francois and get him on mm-hmm. the show for an interview at some point, find out what kind of stuff you guys are doing to make all this go. That's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, last time he was on the BSD Now live stream, uh, he was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that developer summit in uh, Sweden uh, was the second day. We were all pretty tired. Yep. Okay, well, keep up mm-hmm. the good work, guys. We'll look forward to seeing that support just continue to march on. Okay, well, next up, uh, so Larry over at the Phosphor site has, uh, of course, we've mentioned how he's talked about switching to PCBSD for his laptop and uh, primary workstation, but he brought us uh, his 2016 wish list for BSD support going into the new year. So uh, specifically, he's looking at support for a couple desktop applications, mm-hmm. namely Google Hangouts and Spotify. And, uh, of course, this is something that's come up periodically among the PCBSD mm-hmm. community. So at the moment, as far as Google Hangouts goes, a lot of people are either dual booting or using an alternative like WebRTC over other sites that do that mm-hmm. kind of thing. However, there is a Google Hangouts plugin available for Linux, so maybe somebody will have to mess around with that on current now that we have the updated yeah, Linux stack. There, he, uh, Larry links to so, a, a post on the FreeBSD forums that's at least somebody trying to use the Linux one under the emulation. I don't mm-hmm. know how far that got. But I know a bunch of FreeBSD developers use Google Hangouts, and uh, it'd be good to get that working uh, yeah, definitely. if it would be possible. Uh, and then Spotify, I know there are also a number mm-hmm. of FreeBSD developers uh, who would love that. And uh, that's why back in actually 2014 now, that feels like it wasn't that mm-hmm. long ago, uh, when sitting in the Hacker Lounge, Gavin specifically mentioned Spotify. Uh, and so I was trying to get that working under the then experimental uh, newer Linux support in FreeBSD. And uh, because of my limited testing environment, uh, because that wasn't actually in FreeBSD head yet, I was working off a branch in a VM was mm-hmm. Beehive, so it didn't have any graphics. <laughs> um, 
but I did make a bunch of uh, ports to satisfy the dependencies for Spotify and got it far enough that it got to the point where it was asking for the X server and not just crashing. Hmm. Uh, so X11 forwarding yeah. Allen over SSH. I didn't think of that. Could have tested that. Um, <laughs> it was late at night and I was in a foreign country. Not that yes. that's ever stopped me before. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, but yes, I'll have to so dig those like out. And well, I, I don't know how close it actually was to working. Uh, but I might have to grab that and see. Of course, I imagine the Spotify client might have been updated once or twice since then as well. Sure. Sure. Uh, Maybe it's already been broken. Yeah. Again. Who knows? But um, it seemed that was at least somewhat possible. Uh, and Larry also mentions that uh, he could have always run the Windows version of Spotify under Wine, uh, but he's not a huge fan of Wine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of doing that either. That's a really last mm-hmm. resort, last resort option. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. I guess if some aspiring porters out there want to get involved mm-hmm. somewhere, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show. But on the Linux side, it's mostly a matter of just creating the port wrappers for the various Linux mm-hmm. packages. There might be some dependencies it needs. So if uh, you're looking for an easy port to start messing around with, you're not actually tinkering with any code. There's lots of examples in the ports mm-hmm. tree how this is done already. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I will have to try to revive my uh, extra ports that I created uh, for Spotify in my working tree mm-hmm. to see if I can't uh, at least frob that into maybe getting Spotify going again. Although, as much as I would love to spend a day trying to get Spotify working, I have a bunch of other stuff that really is more important right. to do. You got a lot of patches in Fabricator. Yeah, I do. And, like, and I have a bunch more that aren't the, uh, actually in Fabricator yet because they're not quite finished. Well, we need to get uh, your boot environments patch has been there for a while. Can we just commit that? Uh, now, so or? Devin and I have been frobbing on it heavily the last couple of days, and oh, really? um, okay. we need to solve one more problem, I think. And I think we got. I need to make it truncate the the name if it's too long, so it doesn't break the menu. Okay. Uh, sure. And then integrate another thing that Devin gave me the code for yesterday. And I think there was a third thing, but I don't know if it was important. But basically, we had three well, blocking issues, like and I'm sure we've solved two of them. Okay. Well, oh, yes. Like I remember the other one. Uh, the other one was dealing with the loader.conf pollution. But. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm fine with going without that and fixing it later. And if it happens to get fixed in time for 10.3, we get the loader.com fix. Otherwise, at least it still works. Sure. If sure. if if the default yeah. boot environment has some loader.com thing set and switching your boot environment doesn't unset it, that's not a huge deal, I don't think. Not for a lot of yes. people because you know, typically we, we can, are going to have the same yeah, settings. And we can list it as a known issue in the documentation and people can work around it if mm-hmm. it becomes an issue. Uh, but I'd rather not see that stop us from going forward with that. Commit it. Commit it. Do it now. Well, I'm kind of <laughs> in the middle in of a show. Eve tomorrow well, when, when nobody's watching. Uh, I guess separate news item. Uh, I'm no longer under mentorship, so I can just commit stuff now. <laughs> see? Doesn't mean it won't okay. get reverted by somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, well the odds are smaller i think of it getting reversed yes. just got to commit it get yes. it in there i'd love to see that land so you can we, well there's that one to rest and then worry about the jelly yeah one. uh well, well the jelly ones have been advancing jin lee's been reviewing uh all the you know 
after looking at the original version, he was like, you need to make this reuse existing code instead of that. So that required making some changes to existing infrastructure that was already in FreeBSD, like OpenCrypto oh, okay. and Delhi. <laughs> so, Which you kind of didn't want yeah, to touch, Yeah, well, right? so I've, I've touched those now, uh, and oh. uh, they're almost ready to commit. Um, okay. And just, I have to find time to run the Geli regression suite against it, and then Powell's okay with mm-hmm. the changes to Geli, and then that's good. And I think everybody should be happy with the open crypto changes now. Just got to get around to them getting reviewed a, a second time now that the changes are done. But the interesting thing about the ZFS boot environment stuff was, as we were making changes, we were like, well, you know, <laughs> um, it's the previous version that has been a little stale that's been tested by PCBSD and we know works. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then I just came up with, you know, well, let's get this in 11 and get people testing it and make sure it still works uh, so that it's ready in time for 10.3. Well, I'll have to look. You have the new patches on yep. Fabricator? I might have to pull those yep. in here and just verify that they don't break anything in our next yeah, They should be fine. Uh, they're fairly okay. minor. Um, cool. There's, yeah, I'll, I'll try to finish it up tonight and then that way you'll have... Uh, the the final version to pull in there and play with it perfect perfect oh we got a little yeah so we'll, the, the, we hey, got into there's nothing wrong our wish that. list for 2016 that's right <laughs> we will have zfs boot <laughs> environment menu with uh, support for geli in the loader um mm-hmm. the bcache thing that we'll talk about later i wouldn't mind slipping that in as well that makes a big difference for some of my stuff um well, I know the EFI ZFS support is coming yes. along, but having the menus work. Well, EFI. EFI doesn't have any menu at all currently, I don't think. That's what I mean, like having Yeah, that menu. that's that's an entirely different kettle of fish. Yeah, um, I really like that. Okay. But if the EFI support for ZFS could get in in time for 10.3, which I think um, Steve Hartland or somebody is working on that, SMH. It's getting, uh, yeah, it's getting close. Well, then, you know, the FreeBSD installer then needs to learn how to support that. <laughs> Lots mm-hmm. of fun there. Uh, plus, there's, you know, probably some other improvements that could be made to the installer. Uh, but I don't I don't see that I have time to do those, and I don't like changing the installer right before the release because that causes yeah. release engineering to be mad at me. <laughs> that doesn't end well. Exactly. Usually. Nobody wants to ship <laughs> a broken ISO, especially since, you know, FreeBSD ISOs are set in stone once they're released mm-hmm. um and then i would like to implement skeen the bruce schneider's hashing algorithm uh partly because mm-hmm. that's available be, to be hooked up to zfs uh and you know seems like we should have a sha3 implementation at some point as well so i should probably do that <laughs> or someone mm-hmm. should it doesn't have to yeah. be me uh but yeah if any of you want to volunteer out there let mm-hmm. us know <laughs> okay well we should probably get back yes. to our last story here before we do our mm-hmm. interview but uh last up we have a hard float api is coming soon to default on uh arm v6 mm-hmm. so i guess warner Losh posted this yes. so what what exactly is he talking right about here? so when the arm v6 stuff first showed up uh it only had support for software floating numbers uh but mm-hmm. it turns out that every arm v6 chip that's actually supported by freebsd now, you know, there's some that don't have hardware floating, sure. but all the ones that are uh, actually supported by FreeBSD do. And so mm-hmm. we don't have to always use the soft float interface and then, you know, 
possibly make it use hard floats if if that's actually supported, since it's always supported. So uh, basically removing a compatibility shim to make things better. Uh, sure. But it's a slightly complicated process because you know you can't just switch everything at once because the libraries are compiled a certain way, and so he had to build this entire migration path to be able to get there. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm reading through some of the quotes yeah. here. He's got. So he says, uh, all the CPUs that FreeBSD actually supports have hardy, hard floating points in them and uh, supporting hard float uh, for quite some time in the FreeBSD kernel. However, by default, uh, all the applications and libraries use the soft float ABI. Um, mm -hmm. This is the, the new, uh, they created a new ARM v6 HF architecture, which is basically you know a version of the code that always used the hard float API. Uh, but this caused some issues with some ports and uh, the meaning of soft float sadly was ambiguous between, you know, just having the soft float ABI and, you know, the actual soft float libraries that implement floating point when there isn't a hardware FPU to do it for you. Uh, mm. So over the course of the spring and the summer of 2015, he worked on LD.so uh, so that it can load both soft ABI and hard ABI libraries on the same system. And then depending on markings in the binaries themselves, that in the little elf header, it can says it's soft mm -hmm. float or hard float. Um, so that was relatively straightforward to know which was which and just deal with it. Uh, but now that that's there, in the coming days, he'll uh, commit the first steps to change, uh, to move ARM v6 to always be hard float ABI by design. Uh, the kernel doesn't care since it can execute both. Uh, the new LD.SO will allow you to transition through the change by still allowing you to use the older soft float ABI libraries and have those coexist with systems that have the new hard float ABI libraries. Uh, hmm. That change alone isn't enough, but it should be enough to get people through the transition so that you know, in the process of upgrading, you won't be stuck with a broken system. And you won't sure. have to rebuild everything right then. Just as you upgrade stuff, all the soft stuff will just go away. Uh, and the plan is that the ARM v6 HF architecture that was created will be removed before FreeBSD 11 ships, and no one will ever have to know that that was a thing. Because uh, right. it, it happened after 10.0, so it was never part of 10, and it'll be removed before 11, and then we can just pretend that never happened. Uh, right. And also there will be a soft, uh, a libsoft, which will be kind of similar in concept hmm. to the lib32 that allows you to run 32-bit binaries on AMD64. Oh, interesting. Okay. So if you have some of those old binaries laying around, you can still run, run them, them because there'll be this compatibility library available to you. Oh, mm -hmm. good to know. So it seems like, uh, you know, they did a, a nice smooth approach to not leave anybody with a broken system. Yeah, and even, even people only running current, especially since it wasn't in a mm -hmm. release. That's pretty good. So good well, job. I think most That's most awesome. of that ARM stuff was only ever in 11. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good deal. Well, we're going to have our interview here in just a moment with Alex Rosenberg. But before we get to that, we do need to mention our first sponsor this week, which is going to be IX Systems. Mm -hmm. And, of course, ixsystems.com slash bsdnow. That's the URL you want to use for uh, our little landing page there. So go get in touch with those guys and start getting your servers ordered for 2016 so they can get them uh, built and shipped out to you. So start going into the new year. You guys will have some fun new hardware to play with. And, of course, IX can build pretty much anything. So if you're looking at a little FreeNAS Mini, they can do that. You can, heck, you can order those off of Amazon even. But if you need something custom or something weird built, you should give them a call anyway and talk to their sales engineers who can uh, walk you through that and make sure uh, 
you're buying exactly what you need to do what you want to do, not just picking some model off the shelf and saying, I hope that will be good mm -hmm. enough or performant enough to do whatever the job is I want to do. They will actually walk through and go, oh, well, maybe you want to spend more money on this particular type of drive or mm -hmm. hardware versus this and, and save yeah, some money don't, here. Don't waste your money on one of those. It's, it's not, not helpful to you. Yeah, what's, that's what's really nice about talking to the guys at IX Systems. They know their mm -hmm. stuff a lot of times better than you do about the hardware. Yeah. So you get in touch with them, and they'll be able to give you the best recommendations. So if you're running any kind of open source, they will hook you up. So you have anything ordered for 2016? Uh, not for 2016 yet. Okay, well, hopefully I'm sure there will the be future. a bunch, though. All right. <laughs> Great. So again, guys, ixsystems.com slash bsdnow, and let them know that you heard about mm -hmm. it here. We're joined now by Alex Rosenberg, who was the former manager of platform architecture over at Sony. And first of all, we're just really glad to have you with us today and join us on the show. Thanks for taking some time out to do this. My pleasure. Well, great. Well, we've not had you on the show before. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you first get into BSD? Ooh, uh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think for most people, the answer is, is that... Uh, you know, you had some experience and exposure to it, perhaps in in college uh, or thereabouts. It's just my case. I had some early exposure, um, but uh, I would say I got more experience when I was at Apple, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we used large chunks of BSD all over the map uh, to make OS ten. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, that would, that would I would put that as the key BSD exposure. Okay. Uh, so I guess <laughs> right into it. Uh, tell us a little bit about your recent job at Sony and what your responsibilities were. Uh, well, Sony's a, a big, complicated hydro of a company. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would have preferred not to say Sony. Right. Um, I worked in Sony Computer Entertainment America, mm -hmm. which is the uh, regional headquarters of Sony Computer Entertainment which is a Japanese company. That's the division we all know for making PlayStation. Um, the name is at this point unfortunate, but I think the name came before the PlayStation brand. Uh, mm -hmm. um, the uh, organization within that that I was part of was Sony Computer Entertainment Worldwide Studios, which is essentially the first party game development studios that uh, are tasked with making games that are unique and exclusive and, and compelling enough to make people want to buy PlayStations. Sure. Um, that is a virtual company that's spread across the regional headquarters and uh, across many you know, game teams that the company's acquired over the years that are dotted all over the planet. Mm -hmm. I worked in, in what we call a you know, central technology group, <clears throat> uh, global platform um, and global technology. Uh, the, the idea is to make software components that are... Uh, common to all the games, so the game teams don't reinvent the wheel every time. Sure. Uh, otherwise, by default, you know, being uh, you know hardcore software engineers, they'll just write the whole thing in assembly from scratch every time. Um, and so, uh, both as a cost-saving adventure and as a, a you know improve the state-of-the-art type thing. Uh, if we focus, you know, some smart folks in one area, we can do something a little more compelling than each team might bother with uh, in that area. Mm -hmm. So uh, from there. <clears throat> Uh, making, you know, essentially middleware for games, we moved down the stack progressively. Um, I had come into Sony from Apple. I knew a bunch of folks who'd done operating systems work and uh, wanted to do something different. 
Um, everybody wants to work in the games. It's you know kind of the polymath renaissance man software job uh, that exists. You know, you really have exposure to all kinds of uh, disciplines in in, in games. Um, the uh, you know progress down the stack meant we eventually were working on the operating system. Hmm. Yeah, uh, we started with uh, you know components like user space memory management. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a malloc implementation. Um, I don't know if it's not really this crowd, but because uh, it's C++. But um, uh, Andre Alexandrescu with a book called Modern C++ Design. And the big uh, achievement in that book was uh, something called policy templates. Uh, essentially templates that take other templates as parameters to them and use that to configure some uh, code. So we had developed a policy template based memory allocation strategy. Um, I think it was near to seven years before Andre realized that it could be used that way himself. Uh, it's uh-huh. kind of funny. It, it, to me, it was very obvious upon reading his book, but uh, um, it wasn't for him. He kind of went, oh, my God, this is the perfect use for this. <laughs> uh, we're like, yeah, we've been shipping that internally for some time. Um, so things like that. We also did a bunch of work in the file system, mm-hmm. uh, built a uh, streaming edition. So... Uh, if you look at games, uh, you know, t- typically the AAA titles from Sony, uh, like those from Naughty Dog, like Uncharted or The Last of Us, uh, after the initial boot load of the game, uh, you know, which is usually fairly long because you're, mm-hmm. you're playing all of RAM on the, the console, when that's over, you basically never see a loading screen again in those games. Sure. It's a continuously streamed title. And uh, we built a software component called Files that was critical to that uh, behavior in games from Sony. Hmm. And that got us deeply integrated with the file system team. We did some in-kernel work on the PlayStation Vita and uh, continued for PlayStation 4. Very cool. Well, you were also responsible for uh, selecting and championing both LLVM and BSD as the basis of the PS4 toolchain and OS. So what, what drew you to these two projects specifically? Uh, let me give you a bit of background first. Uh, okay. So uh, I showed up, uh, and PlayStation 3 was fairly deep in development. It had been going for years uh, at Sony. And um, I had the distinct advantage of having been disclosed on the cell chip when I was at Apple um, you know, as a possible buyer of the chip um, and what modifications would Apple want. We, we do that kind of thing all the time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I showed up already knowing about the chip, whereas most folks at Sony uh, who are working on PlayStation 3 games didn't yet know about the chip's details. Sure. Um, so that, that was a distinct advantage. Um, as we worked on PlayStation 3, there were several moments where it was very clear to me that the operating system team in Tokyo, uh, although they were trying extremely hard and did quite an amazing job, really didn't know their customers very well. Uh, they didn't didn't have a lot of direct exposure to the game teams, um, and uh, they were making uh, decisions that had to be reverted over time. That's mm-hmm. part of what you know the first party studios do is um, you know course correct things. You know the little one or two percent here and there um, changes. There were a couple of them that were bigger, but I realized that the core competence in Tokyo was not software design and develop realistically. And uh, their time would be better spent 
focusing on unique features of the platform in their software and leaving the, shall we call it, plumbing to existing open source projects. Um, so when we started early development of PlayStation Vita, I was jumping up and down and going, you should use FreeBSD. And uh, they're like, what is this FreeBSD you speak of? Uh, is that like Linux? And uh, that ensued a lot of conversations. Um, the PlayStation Vita, of course, did not use uh, BSD as its core, although um, like several of the other operating systems uh, that they built over time, they tended to grab the network stack from <clears throat> a Japanese distro of NetBSD mm-hmm. or something like that, uh, or, or parts here and there. You know, If you look at the open source licensing statements, you can see all the bits and parts they've taken over time. And, like Everybody uses David Gay's floating point uh, to string code, or string to float code. Uh, mm-hmm. That's um, so as uh, Vita was happening, PlayStation 4 was ramping up, and uh, the argument I'd made for Vita was uh, taking hold a bit with people like, you know, maybe um, this is a good idea, so let's do some experimentation. Um, we had a, a team port a PlayStation 3 game to Linux as a test, just a vanilla Linux. Um, I, I would say more work was put into getting a um, backdoored driver put together. Um, typically our consoles, uh, all game consoles, the game developers write directly basically to the GPUs. Mm-hmm. Um, the GPU and, and the traditional OS driver speak in terms of a push buffer, which is essentially a, a list of commands with data blocks in it that the GPU directly executes. It typically has some sort of little front-end um, controller inside of it that does that work. And uh, the commodity operating systems don't do that. They hide that because they want you to write to an API like DirectX or OpenGL, which insulates you from those level of details, uh, which are per chip. But the game console business, you tend to ship the same chip for you know, 7 to 10 years or something like mm-hmm. that. And so you do want people to write directly to it and get that extra 15 to 30% of performance that those API layers are, are eating off the top. Eek every bit out you can. Totally, mm-hmm. totally. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, and, and it makes a huge difference. You know, For all the rhetoric that comes out of companies launching their hot new mobile tablet product and saying, oh, it's console quality. Mm, yeah, I know, not really at all. <laughs> um, not even close in, in many ways. Uh, although they, those those companies are iterating every year, whereas game consoles, like I said, are you know seven to ten year kind of windows. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, where were we? So uh, yeah, good. Um, we were going into the LLVM and BSD is the basis. Yeah, yeah so I, I'm just trying to think where in the interesting story. Uh, you were doing the first test of a game on Linux. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that worked out, right? And that that's a relatively unmodified OS, um, and the game worked. You know, it, it wasn't hiccuping particularly badly or things like that. Um, that gave everybody the evidence they needed to go further with that. Uh, there was quite a lot of discussion of well, uh, why FreeBSD, which we've not heard of, uh, mm-hmm. why why BSD at all, uh, why not the Southern BSD, why why not Linux? And I had to go explain licensing to people. Uh, well, you know, was that, was that compelling? Yeah, of course. It's it's not the core expertise of software engineers to know licensing, right? You know, if you work in a large corporation, you just do you know your job. You don't tend to know all these details. Um, so they then you know 
went back and talked to the lawyers for whatever period of time and figured out that that was okay. Um, and so uh, we started using FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. That worked out pretty well. Um, LVM is a whole separate story. Um, again, PlayStation Vita timeframe, we were looking at what compiler to use with Vita. Uh, there was an in-house compiler um, that uh, Sony division called SN Systems had built uh, out of um, a compiler from an old company called Apogee Systems that they'd acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, they had made that the platform compiler for, uh, well, not a platform compiler, an alternative platform compiler for PlayStation uh, 3 and uh, had done the same code base, you know, it dates back to the late 80s. So they, they used it on many platforms before that. And they're like, well, we're going to be using, you know, an ARM core in Vita. So uh, this compiler had worked on the Nintendo DS, so let's adapt it. And that was obvious to them. At the same time, the team internally uh, in uh, Foster City, California, that maintained GCC for PlayStation 3, they are like, well, uh, you know, GCC is the best ARM compiler. This isn't even a, you know, an issue. And so they pursued that. In the meantime, I went, uh, you know, hey guys, there's this thing that's been going on called LLVM that looks really good. And I've been like following it since Chris Latin first posted in like 2001 or 2002 mm-hmm. uh, to some mailing lists. And he's been making all the right decisions and there's a ton of energy behind it. And all these companies are jumping on the bandwagon. Shouldn't we look at it? And obviously these two existing compiler teams are like not interested in looking at someone else's car. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, by pointing it out, of course, naturally, you're the one who gets tasked with it. Sure. So, um, we, uh, we brought up uh, LVM uh, as a test for uh, the BeagleBone, actually, hmm. uh, bare, bone, uh, <clears throat> bare Metal, and uh, uh, went from there. Uh, Performance-wise, it, it was on par with the other other choices. You know, you win one benchmark, you lose one benchmark, kind of thing. Um, overall, LVM I think was a, a little bit above um, in in terms of uh, choice. Uh, GCC, the GCC team didn't do anything. They just you know compiled you know the stock distro and supplied it and said have fun. They didn't really put any effort into uh, tuning it for any of the benchmarks that the company cared about. Um, so at the end of the day, the guys in Japan looked at the, the choices, said, uh, well, we really like LVM, but Alex's team isn't, you know, a 50 person team that's ready to support a compiler, which is not something that was on the table. Mm-hmm. And like, I assumed the compiler team would take over, uh, kind of thing. Um, so they went with the in-house compiler for that. And that was very popular for Vita. Because uh, it, it was much better than GCC had been for the customers, you know. Um, the game development community had moved from Linux to Windows over the years, and uh, they were very happy to have a, a, a Windows-focused support team uh, supplying them with tools. The um, but you know it sunk in in everybody's head that LVM was something we should do, and so as PlayStation Four was ramping up, it was a given that we would use it. Uh, the in-house compiler had no x86 support, starting from scratch in x86 is uh, pure insanity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that was kind of the obvious choice. And uh, I started ramping up a, a team to work on that from that beginning. Um, other teams uh, joined in over time. 
uh, you know, the team that had traditionally done the GCC compiler and the team that had traditionally done the in-house compiler both joined into LVM uh, as an internal project. But uh, uh, my team focused at the forefront on open source and leading the charge in terms of uh, features. Cool. Well, I guess that kind of answers the second question about uh, what are alternatives did you consider? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I think uh, it does answer, but uh, uh, the GCC community, I'll say, uh, including the in-house people who uh, have worked on GCC, uh, who all left the company, um, they were not doing themselves any favors. Um, that community uh, kind of burnt a lot of people uh, with attitude. In the same way that you know, the Linux kernel mailing list is pretty hostile, um, I think the GCC community really does not want new contributors. They're all pretty happy with their their uh, position of authority and uh, they're not as welcoming as they should be. Okay. The community started as a pretty welcoming space mm -hmm. and that's worked out pretty well. Okay. So uh, next up, without giving away too much detail, can you tell us what some of the major challenges were in using a unnamed BSD for the base OS of a gaming platform? Right. Well, uh, yeah, let's, let's address that for a second. Uh, <laughs> PR folks in Japan for some reason only want to say BSD, and I don't know really why. Um, we, we had the argument, but it wasn't their decision. Um, and what happened is essentially uh, the lead platform architect, uh, Mark Cerny, mm -hmm. said BSD in public and didn't say more than that. And I, I suspect, to be honest with you, at the time that Mark didn't remember which distro we uh, <laughs> were using uh, sure. as a basis. Um, so the, the PR folks really just didn't want to take it further than that. Um, but uh, all the public stuff we've talked about is FreeBSD specific, so I, mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with it. And our licensing statement says it's the FreeBSD kernel. So <laughs> yeah, and, you know. and, and it's it's you know stated as fact in Wikipedia, which is a higher standard for this kind of stuff than most people. Um, although you know you, you follow that chain of, of footnotes and you basically end up in a circle, um, uh, you know, which I think goes back to leaked uh, screenshots of the dev kit boot sequence and stuff like that. Right. Uh, or just the what's this, sony.co.jp website with all the copyright statements and it's like, well, right. Robert <laughs> Watson <laughs> only works on FreeBSD. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And and the PR approved a public talk where I talked about uh, GM modules. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. <laughs> it's a very big company's work. Yeah. Uh, everybody's trying to cover their, their own butt. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, um, uh, what was it like? Yeah, well, some of the major challenges, like as you're coming to this with like a fresh OS or whatever, yeah. what are those uh, huge hurdles? So a uh, couple of problems. Um, I think the first thing is is that the the team tasked with the OS bring up in Japan did what they knew how to do, which is the first thing they did was um, strip support for standard BIOS out of the kernel mm -hmm. and only would boot from their custom um and we'll call it a BIOS. It's no longer really like a standard PC BIOS, um, which uh, to me like hampered development significantly because you could no longer use tools like VirtualBox or VMware with their built-in GDB nodes mm -hmm. uh, for debugging. Mm -hmm. sure. like, now, if you're, you're working on a kernel, that is everything to me. But uh, they were more than happy to hook up JTAG devices on, um, you know, uh, a chip and, and go with that approach. Um, beyond that, you know. We had to customize uh, pretty heavily. Um, 
you know, for all we say, oh, it's based on FreeBSD or whatever, it's not as simple as that anymore. Um, there's virtually no user land code left. Um, mm -hmm. the, the syscall interface tends to be the same. Um, and there's, I believe, a GitHub repo where someone has done a bunch of reverse engineering work. I can show you that uh, syscall list pretty, pretty well. Um, that tends to say the same, and, and in kernel tends to say the same, except for thread scheduling policy type stuff and file system type stuff. Um, there's some other resource allocation things. Uh, I would say one of the biggest changes would be resource allocation. Um, you know, it's no longer okay to just say, okay, allocate pages and use mprotect uh, to lock them down uh, for the ones that the GPU is going to use. Um, they instead have a budgeting process so that the background uh, demons and things that the OS itself uses are not running on cores that the game team would want to use. So they kind of reserve which cores do what. They reserve uh, memory spaces and, and have a tight allocation policy system around that. Um, same kinds of things happen for the file system. You know, their bandwidth guarantees they'd like to give to the game teams mm -hmm. this minimum um, based on more or less the worst um, storage medium they plan to ever ship um, and the, you know, worst access time for that worst medium plus 10 or 15% or whatever. Um, and so actually we, there's a GM module that simulates that worst case scenario that you have to pass QA with um, to, mm. to try to test things. Interesting. Yeah. Um, thread scheduling is, is different on game consoles across the industry. Uh, generally speaking, it is uh, preemptive to higher priority and cooperative to lower priority. So it does not make sure everybody has time. Um, that's kind of your responsibility and thread priorities. Um, user space, like I said, has completely changed. Every single API call was renamed. Um, there was a coding standard and everybody wanted to obey it, so they renamed everything. So you have, you know, SCEP thread join, you know, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> SCE net select. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, it means you can't Google answers um, to the problems or, or search Stack Overflow or whatever. But uh, on the other hand, for the calls where they've customized their behavior a little bit for the platform, uh, you're less likely to be confused about it. Mm -hmm. Could go either way on that. But th that was, you know, I would say that the general essence of the change we do the operating system. Um, naturally, there's a ton of work put in the security and uh, um, the security team doesn't like people to talk about it, and they don't like to even talk about it to us. So, um, despite what I know, it's not uh, not something that they uh, were trying to let me know. Let's put it that. Okay. Yeah. yeah um, right. I guess were there any uh, features, or you know, was the reliability of FreeBSD good enough, or did you have to make changes to certain things? Reliability. Um, no, I think it's pretty pretty good out of the box. If anything, our, our problems were self-imposed due to our changes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, generally speaking, uh, when I was tracking down a problem, it was in code that had been changed. Right. Uh, sure. The uh, I, it was definitely the case that starting with a working operating system that more or less already ran on our, our hardware was uh, highly valuable and saved probably a couple of years of of development. Um, did that really mean that the team in Tokyo that's tasked with operating system bring up 
did they really get to focus on the unique features of the platform? I would say less than I would have liked because they did so much customization. Um, I, I would hope as they go forward, they do less customization because they really didn't need to do as much as they did. Um, but we'll see. Hmm. Uh, see what they do. So do you know offhand how maybe some of the reception has been from the gaming development community? Has been using a, a system running a BSD been an issue for them at all? I don't think so. Uh, I think it's actually been pretty good. Uh, okay. Generally speaking, developers were very happy with the uh, platform in, in the early days. Uh, typically, that that year right before launch, uh, or a year and a half, let's say, that game developers have access to the actual um, hardware and software stack as it's finalizing, is usually pretty miserable for the launch game teams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things are very unstable, and usually includes the tools and things like that. But this time, we we you know came out with a completely stable tool chain. Um, not just because of LVM, but because most of the auxiliary tools, the, the GUI tools that uh, that SN Systems Division builds, um, that plug into Visual Studio, so the debugger and performance analysis tools and things like that, were all uh, brought over from the Vita, where they mm-hmm. had just been rewritten essentially like the year before. So um, they had a very stable base all the way up the stack, and that I think helped everybody uh, do better uh, at launch. So it typically, you know, over the life of a game console, people get better and better at, at eking every little bit of performance out of that particular hardware. Sure. Uh, so the launch titles usually, you know, they're not quite sure what's going to ship, how much RAM is going to be in it, how much storage space, you know, what the bandwidth is going to be here and there, um, you know, how many compute units will be in the GPU. These sorts of things maybe are variable toward the last minute, and the game teams don't know, so they they underplan. They, they go... Mm-hmm. A little bit light, and over the years, you know that tightens up um, memory that had been reserved by the um, OS team for their own use. They realize they don't ultimately need, and they give back, um, you know, additional uh, compute resources that might have been reserved are given back in scheduling policies and things like that. Hmm. And the games will get better, but I think because we had a stable um, OS and we had a stable toolchain, people were able to do much better at launch. Also, clearly, the choice of using relatively uh, conventional PC architecture that people were very familiar with that resembled the desktop machine they did their early development prototyping on helped them a lot. Um, I don't honestly think that x86 makes as much of a difference as people would say uh, mm-hmm. because very few people can actually write assembly code for a modern x86 chip in any meaningful way. Um, you know, they're all micro-coded and uh, cracked up codes and all that kind of stuff. and way out of order and, and humans can't do that very well. Um, but familiarity means they can read the assembly and they can, you know, get an idea of whether they're matching instructions they would like, you know, are we getting vector ops out of this loop and that kind of stuff. So I think that helped. Uh, but general overall system architecture understanding was already there for everybody and that that was a huge improvement this generation. Okay. Cool. So uh, you talked a little bit about uh the way consoles access video cards being slightly different. So mm-hmm. was that an issue with uh, using BSD? Like, does that mean there's, yeah, there's no, like a graphics no card driver for? No, no, no. Uh, there is, you might call a driver, but it's not a driver in the sense like you would assume from Windows and, and other more commodity operating systems. Um, you know, if you look at the Windows drivers for graphics, they have compiler you know, or two or three hiding in the driver. 
that's just pure insanity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane. Um, it's also probably a giant security surface area problem. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there is a driver. There has to be some OS involvement uh, in handing over control back and forth between the GPU and the CPU. So uh, there are, you know, iOctals and things like that that are used. You, you know, even though you're building this uh, push buffer directly in these APIs on these platforms, there's still generally a, you know, one kick call at the end that has to be an OS syscall. Um, that also gives the operating system time to let uh, overlay graphics get drawn and things like that um, that need to happen. Um, it's been different on each console generation how that works. Uh, some of them have multiple frame buffers and do compositing the hardware so that the OS um, additions are not seen by the game um, and don't alter what it's doing in case it does something crazy like video feedback tricks or something like that. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, no, uh, very simple stuff. And, you know, driver work was done obviously for the hardware. Uh, quite a few of the, the components in a machine like a PlayStation 3 or PlayStation 4 were new to that machine. Um, they were uh, either newly licensed sections of, of core IP um, or they were, um, uh, you know, unique chips that were new, things like that. Hmm. Okay. So um, how about working with upstream uh, BSD? Is, is that something that still is ongoing where you pull in, say, updates to security or new features maybe that land in the upstream version of the OS? Or is it pretty much just its own thing at this point yeah well it, it's it's its own thing you know there's definitely the security team is on the lookout for uh, patches they need to pull in mm-hmm. uh, uh, objectively i would say that they they suffer slightly from um not being part of the community uh not being you know obviously active participants in that process um but the, you know they have to pull in stuff mm-hmm. uh you know and they they look at all the open source components that are used in the product because it's not just the OS and the compiler and things like that. Sure, know, quite a lot of components, and so they they look across all of them. Okay. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, you're a contributor to LLVM and Clang. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit of what areas you worked on and what your interests are in there? Sure. Um, so I, it was like I said, a project I was tracking for a very long time, um, very early days. Uh, at Apple, I was starting a uh, early days for LLVM. So 2001, 2002 timeframe, I was working on uh, a side project of my own to start a new compiler. And um, I, uh, I saw Chris's early posts, took a look at what he was doing, and most of the decisions he'd made in design were very similar to the ones I was making in the code I'd written. Um, you know, there's a key dogfooding aspect of using C++ to build the compiler. Um, prior to that, I would say C++ compilers were generally quite poor at C++ code optimization. But if you make the compiler in C++ itself, you're kind of forced to solve those problems. Um, so that was a core decision that was very similar. Uh, the shape of the internal node graph, um, the way it was done, uh, the way reference counting on that node graph was handled with smart pointers. Those kinds of things were all exactly the same as what I was looking at. So um, I did a little bit of internal evangelism at Apple uh, on that. Um, caught the attention of two uh, then relatively junior engineers. Um, and while I was out of Apple in my earlier Sony, 
those two engineers wrote the PowerPC backend for LFM uh, and showed it to the head of developer tools at the time at Apple. Uh, it was dismissed at that time as, you know, it'll never be better than GCC. <laughs> uh, which, you know, fine attitude to take. But then, you know, not too much later, the Free Software Foundation went full retard with their uh, you know, GPL v3 drafts that talked about um, you know, typosization and all these other things. Um, it scared every lawyer on the planet that is even remotely sure. involved in, in open source. Um, they reined it in pretty well. I mean, GPL v3 at the end of the day isn't as bad as the drafts were. The drafts were just horrible. Um, really wanted no corporate involvement in the projects. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and that that was enough, I think, to push Apple over to what was that thing that you guys showed us? Uh, and yep. uh, and they 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 went uh, all the way, you know, all in on LVM. They hired Chris Latner, um, and he built a, a new team, uh, and uh, they've been uh, contributing very well since. Other companies, you know, Google and and, uh, and Sony have you know been major contributors um, and on down the chain. Um, so I, I had th that really early involvement. Then, of course, as I mentioned, you know, at Sony, I, I pointed it out, and we did the uh, early valuation work, and uh, continued that uh, that evolution at Sony. Um, you know, the last statistics I ran, Sony was the number three contributor behind Google and Apple, um, and we were doing so with a whole lot less people. Hmm. So I think we were very effective um, at, uh, at being good contributors. Cool. Well, you're also a member of the board on the LLVM Foundation. So, can you tell us a little about the foundation and what its role is and how the LLVM sure. project works? Um, you know, it's very similar to uh, most open source projects. At, at the end of the day, um, there's going to need to be, you know, some uh, project governance. I wouldn't say in terms of, you know, what direction should the code take and things like that, but more in terms of uh, legal entity ownership of things and um, uh, licensing issues and things like that. Um, so the foundation was formed to take over those problems for LVM and Klein. Um, you know, everything from uh, license to trademarks to uh, running the developer meetings and uh, taking donations to in order to facilitate those developer meetings and running the equipment that holds the repo things like that. Um, those are all you know, critical bits of infrastructure that a project needs have to happen. And if you don't do that right, you, you know, run into, you know, uh, trouble where somebody who worked on the project offshoots from it, steals the name, you know, and becomes the new reality of that project. That's happened a few times across other open source projects. So, um, you know, we, we sought to put together the Open Foundation to take care of that problem set. But again, you know, not really trying to impose anything on the actual software development. It's really they take care of infrastructure and, and solve problems that need to be solved. Mm -hmm. uh, so previously, you've talked a little bit about actually integrating client LLVM into Microsoft Visual Studio for people. I guess that's for the development games for the PlayStation, uh, since that's where most game development happens. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it's again one of those things. The, the whole industry, the whole console industry, was on Linux. Um, uh, you know, they uh, they did their development um, using command line tools, and the 
middleware vendors started to build alternative compilers that ran on Windows. Um, and people bought those in droves. Uh, ultimately, if you remember the company Metroworks, uh, their tools were basically Windows only by the PlayStation 2 generation. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was all cross-platform code, you know, those, those were Mac frameworks that were, had been ported to Windows that their IDE were built on. Um, so, uh, you know, continuing that trend, um, Visual Studio was extremely popular in, in that crowd. Uh, as a, a traditional Mac user, I'm horrified at you know the key equivalents. Um, you know why does home and end go to the beginning and end of the line and not the beginning and end of the document, right? <laughs> home and end worked that way, you know, dating back to the you know the '80s. You know, I got the extended keyboard for my Mac too, and home and end keys were on it, and they went to the top and bottom of the scroll bar. I I, I don't understand Windows. Uh, leave it at that. I, I would say the uh, opposite. You know, that's what control page down is for the end of the document. Well, sure. I mean, you know, back to the Lear Siegel ADM 3D, 3As in college, but, you know, uh, HJKL forever, right? Um, the, uh, you know, you, you learn a particular editor, it becomes muscle memory, and everything else is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes religious. You know, you will never hear an end to Emacs versus VI type arguments. Um, and for the Windows game developers in particular, there is only Visual Studio. The rest of the tool around the editor, uh, you know, which is a religious preference, I find personally exceptionally quite poor. Um, you know, the, they've gotten better over the years, but the, you know, the build system is really not very rich. Um, you know, you, you tend to have to repeat yourself a lot in, in describing uh, command line flags to the, the tools. Um, those happen in the leaf node of the graph, uh, mm-hmm. not spread throughout like you would find in a typical makefile or other things where you can sort of establish rules. They've added that over time, but it's not the commodity way that the tool is used. Um, and even though, you know, we say Visual Studio, if you actually go sit uh, in each game studio across the planet and look at what the developers are actually using on their visual machines, they're all using the editor of choice and then switching over to Visual Studio for their compile or, or whatever. Sure. They might not even be using it for their compile. They might be using a, a purchase product like Incredibuild or an in-house distributed build system. So, uh, you know, uh, Visual Studio is kind of a core focus for the game development community, and the tools have to be there. So uh, the folks at SN Systems, um, largely based in Bristol, but they're also in uh, Dublin and uh, San Jose, California, they... Um, they do a pretty remarkable job of adapting um, the command line tools into that environment. Um, a lot of those pieces, uh, because they're closed source, uh, you can find open source equivalents now um, or free from Microsoft equivalents uh, in the latest mm-hmm. Visual Studios. Um, the Visual Studio team, Microsoft's done an admirable job in the last two years, just aggressively pursuing everything that's non-traditional Windows development. Uh, if you take a look at all the, the things they've done, they ship client in, mm-hmm. in that product now. That's that's madness. Uh, it, you know, five years ago you'd be like, sure. why would they ever do such a thing? They support GDB out of the box now as the uh, debugger. Um, you know, that's mm-hmm. just remarkable to me. Um, but uh, you know, again, people's preference. It, it, I think it comes back to that sort of religious level editor choice thing. Um, so that's where the games industry is and. Uh, that's a key 
key thing for Sony to have been in that space. Okay. Well, you've also worked on a, a Clang parser for D-Trace, so tell us a bit about how that happened. Uh, that was a, a desire for a while. Um, we brought up D-Trace on the PlayStation Vita. Um, that was quite a, a Herculean effort, I would say. Um, you know, D-Trace assumes every OS is Solaris, um, and uh, mm-hmm. most are not, <laughs> especially not the PlayStation Vita's OS. Um, and uh, there are several things you notice over time. And one of them is, as people go to try to write D code uh, for D-Trace, there's virtually nothing other than syntax error that comes back at them if they've gotten it wrong. And um, we were working with Clang, and it, you know, it seemed to me that uh, the Clang parser could also parse the D language. Uh, it's really C with a few additional bits of syntax. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple top-level declarations that take you into D-specific syntax. Very straightforward. Um, the type system is C. Uh, you know, the intent in, in decode is you can pound include C system headers, and generally they work. You know, the structured um, and typed F uh, type things work. So you know, a lot of code is shared in common. Um, so I had an intern uh, who was working that project, and um, he spent you know the whole summer beating his head against it and made some good progress, but. At the end of the day, the realization was there was just too much interdependency between the parser and then the semantic action behavior out of that front end. Um, So he wasn't able to to get things to work. Really, the correct thing to do is to rewrite that entire part of libdtrace. And uh, we haven't gotten there uh, at Sony. Um, I think that's still something that's worth doing. If you dig through the dtrace code, unless you're really... I mean, hardcore C is the only way um, programmer, you pretty quickly feel the age of that code. And not, I mean, in terms of years ago it was written, because it's relatively young in, in, in this regard. It's the style. It's written a very old style and uh, with a, a language that's missing a lot of features that uh, you really kind of want to use. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of work that could be done to refactor D-Trace. Losing some of the Solaris heritage might be beneficial mm-hmm. uh, because everybody spends a lot of energy making an adapter layer. Um, although it means you can read, you know, uh, sorry, run the great scripts from like Brendan Gregg or other folks. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's beginning to feel its age. And uh, I'm not saying that, say, System Tap is better. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think uh, the, the world could use something a little more modern. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more of uh, any upcoming developments in LLVM over the course of 2016? Oh, good question. Um, well, I, I can guess at what the community is doing based on their commits. Um, it's been a lot of effort at uh, Google. Their uh, so-called peak performance team has been working very hard on some things. Um, they're trying to do a few very interesting projects uh, in terms of improving profile-guided optimization. Uh, right now, the profile-guided optimization is uh, essentially front-end instrumentation uh, based on language constructs. The, um, uh, the folks at Google are working to make that a back-end based mm-hmm. choice. So, you know, uh, optimizations will be added more in the, the middle of the compiler uh, once the more final shape of the code is known. So it maps more directly to processor-level instructions. And uh, they're able to use PC sampling and some other things um, at that level, then 
And so I think we'll see a bunch of development in that area uh, hmm. come out in the product. Um, although, you know, it's all been happening in, in public for some time. I think, that, you know, probably ship in 2016. Um, obviously, there's been a huge amount of work at Apple on the Swift front end. Um, and uh, they've done some higher level passes as well that are specific to Swift. And I think that uh, the energy behind that is infectious. So I think we'll see a whole lot of stuff happen. Um, in terms of other areas, uh, I'm very hopeful that the LLD linker will finally come online for Elf. Nice. Um, pretty much ready for cough. Uh, and uh, I think Elf will happen this year. And with any luck, uh, Mako at Apple uh, will happen as well. And then we'll have a, a new quality system linker available on open source. Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. significantly faster so far than prior tools from any vendor. <laughs> that oh, that'd be nice. Anyone's seen, yeah. Uh, we've seen numbers, you know, 2x faster than the fastest other tool that we can find. Hmm. So that's quite good. Uh, this is a good starting point for finishing yeah. the product. We'll, we'll take that now, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I think what, what's missing there and things I'd like to see uh, and I doubt it'll happen in 2016. Um, the rest of the binary utilities are missing in the LVM suite. Um, a lot of projects still rely on Canopian utils. Maintaining that code is just self-loathing and, and torture. Uh, yeah. You know, it's impossible to read. It's buggy as sin. Um, you know, building it just you know makes me want to you know rage quit, put my hand through the wall type stuff. You, you try building a Canadian cross compiler if you haven't. It. It's just miserable. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. uh, you know. Um, worse if you're trying to also build Julib-C at the same time. You know, you build partway, then you control C the build, then you do this other thing, you move this thing, then you build again. Right. Oh, what? Good God. You know, <laughs> you're still starting with autoconf, so you sit there and watch your, you know, eight or more core machine, you know, run single-threaded, testing things that have not changed since the 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, like, could you please cache that information across the whole system and maybe make it run in parallel, please. Um, uh, it's frustrating. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we could help them by having less unique distributions of, of Unix systems uh, and letting some fall by the wayside over time. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen because people love to do customization. Mm -hmm. um, but so yeah, it'd be nice to get a uh, you know like a, an assembler driver that's not just Clang, so more like a gas command line compatible tool. Uh, would be nice. Um, the rest of the tools, you know, strings and size and NM, AR, etc. Some of them are, are complete or very close to complete, but some just aren't even started. I mean, I, It'd be nice. Mm, to I think FreeBSD uses the Elf toolchain string and object copy and a couple other things right. now. Right. There, there are other choices. Absolutely. Uh, I'm talking about the NLV. Oh, yeah. because LVM has a lot of interesting infrastructure to use for those things, which means. It'll be much easier to bring up a new uh, processor, let's say. If you have a single code base, you added only one auto-generated file. Um, mm -hmm. well, I shouldn't say one input to the auto-generator. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, every compiler, assembler, et cetera, has this sort of uh, uh, auto-generated sets of tables and things. And you, know, you don't want to do it multiple times. Um, sure. So it would be nice to get that all in one place. Plus, you know, LVM is built as a framework. So as new types of tools might get invented, particularly at all the work that's been happening in product security and reverse engineering analysis for that, 
Um, I, I see there's space for lots of new tools. Um, it'd be great to have an open source tool on par with Ida Pro. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, a tool suffers from bad UI itis, uh, you know, or maybe uh, UI quality blindness that comes with developer tools. Um, although it's clearly the industry standard and an amazing tool, um, it would be nice to have an open source equivalent. I don't think those things will happen in 2016, but nice to see those get started. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Uh, okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing at your new job? I guess going back to Apple here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 12 years since I've been there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting in, in terms of talking to some folks there. Uh, while you might think everything's changed, it all hasn't um, mm -hmm. as well. So they're still using the same bug tracking system. You know, uh, It's still using the same fonts. <laughs> right. CY, <laughs> which are old fonts at this point, even though the tool's been rewritten a couple times. Um, I don't know if you know this, uh, Apple's bug tracker, which is known as Radar, uh, was what inspired Bugzilla. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The, several folks who worked on the Copeland OS at Apple uh, went to uh, Netscape. And I guess as HTML forms started to appear, they're like, hey, we could make a Radar clone. Mm -hmm. They didn't quite get there. Okay. Um, I would say Radar is much more sophisticated. Um, but uh, it's also a native tool, and that makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, what will I be doing? So, uh, as I understand, generally speaking, I will have almost everything that is uh, LVM and Clang and Assembler and Linker and related tools that is not Swift and is not the GUI. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the command line tools in all those areas. Um, looking forward to working on LDB. Uh, that'd be kind of kind of fun for me. Um, looking forward to seeing LLD come online. Um, and uh, obviously, there's just an infinite amount of work to do in LVM and Clang. And um, looking forward to working with the Swift team. Uh, that will be fun. And uh, with any luck, uh, in imparting some of the lessons I've learned in the games industry to the key teams at Apple that uh, hold those areas of responsibility since they're somewhat distributed around the company. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, we look forward to uh, inheriting all your work on LLVM. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy that uh, it's been an open source project for the last several years for me. Uh, very different development than uh, typical in-house closed source development. Mm -hmm. and, uh, particularly in that project, it's been a great community and uh, very welcoming. And I think uh, if you maybe thought it, these things are interesting, but you know, compilers scare you, uh, don't be scared. Take a look at what Elevim has to offer because it's uh, quite an amazing community to to join and. and make really interesting new tools out of it. Right, because like you said, not all of it is necessarily compilers. Like, we need a new string tool that's sure. not yeah. all that compilery, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, if, it's pretty common, actually. You know, if you want to invent a new programming language, it, you do that on top of LLVM, mm -hmm. period. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's just the new standard. And um, uh, while, you know, we don't need flavor of the week languages, um, and, and probably everyone has to get it out of their system as a software engineer. Um, you know, it's the good place to go for that. Um, it's very straightforward to do. You can do some really quite compelling things with it. Hmm. You know, embed the JIT in your your application mm -hmm. and compile stuff on the fly. Those sorts of things cool. are pretty straightforward to do with LVM because it's a framework. Mm -hmm. And I, I look forward to the fact that we'll have a system linker that is also a framework that can be tied in and that shares components. 
Um, I'm looking forward to kind of upsetting that 1975, uh, you know, compile uh, link, you know, compile assemble link debug, you know, kind of sequence. Um, there's really no reason for the linker to come at the end. In fact, mm -hmm. you're actually potentially penalizing yourself. You know, if you have a big enough project, um, files you compiled at the beginning of your compilation are now out of this cache uh, by the time you go to the linker. So mm -hmm. why not have the linker process them immediately after they come out of the compiler? Right? That kind of that stuff. That makes sense. Yeah, so I, I think there's some some upset we could do to that because we have a, a common tool chain built out of common code in the framework style. Uh, it be interesting to see what we, we can come up with, but uh, I think it's an uphill battle, much the same as uh, if I were to tell you, hey, we should get rid of text as, as input to our programming languages and uh, cache token streams, or, you know, um, you know, some ah. structural editor. These things have been pursued over the years, but at the end of the day, everyone's like, no, I want text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, my other tools use text. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I can build my own tools to process my code, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if we had something other than the C preprocessor, <laughs> we would probably be doing better at those things today, but we, we don't. We, we have sure. text based uh, tool that everyone's afraid of changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I, I like the idea of Clang integrated into my text editor so that it can tell me things as I'm writing the code. Right. Well, I mean, that was a major, uh, major driving reason for Apple to do what they do with Clang's design. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Xcode does so very heavily and it works out well. And you contrast that with uh, Visual Studio, which has multiple parsers uh, they have to carry with them in order to handle those tasks. So, uh, you know, instead of having a, you know, the fast mode that Clang has for handling um, uh, what Microsoft calls IntelliSense, you know, mm -hmm. as type uh, completion, code completion, um, instead of having a fast parser mode for that, they actually have a whole separate parser. And, uh, you know, there's no way around that for them at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, they would have to adopt Clang full force. And sure. they have too many legacy customers that can't quite go to Clang yet. Mm -hmm. So that, that's not something that they're prepared to do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't envy them. They have at least three parsers for C++. Ugh. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And, 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 you know, C++ is much deeper of a language than it seems when you're having to write it. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. deeper and deeper into some of the features. You know, like, you can do that? Wow. What does that mean yeah. for runtime? Or, you know, what, how do you even track those data structures inside the compiler? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those sorts of things. Uh, the, the, there's realization after realization as you start to work on it that uh, it's much deeper than you, you think. And I can't imagine having three parsers. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it will certainly be nice for some open source IDs to uh, adopt those kinds of features. And we've seen some plugins to you know, Vim and, and uh, Emacs, but I think it'd be nice to see a broader adoption of client's mm -hmm. capabilities there. Mm -hmm. uh, so in your prior stint at Apple, uh, you worked directly with Steve Jobs. Do you have an interesting story or something you can share with us? Uh, well, yeah, um, I, I would say I was lucky enough to work with Steve. Um, there were some people who worked with him you know, day in and day out. I, I did not. I, at the, towards the end of my career there, uh, at the time, was working on the classic feature, which was a really fairly heroic gluing together of the old Mac OS and Mac OS X mm -hmm. uh, at the kernel level. They're actually glued together, um, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, it meant that uh, you could run 
uh, traditional Mac OS applications on top of OS X. And they, they worked for all intents and purposes. And lots of things had to be adapted. You know, printing worked, right? Things like that. Sure. You know, all kinds of craziness. Um, and um, working on that project, uh, we were still shipping at the time uh, machines that had uh, Mac OS 9 on them uh, natively, but could also boot 10. And uh, there was this little thing that uh, Apple was working on. Um, Called iTunes, mm-hmm. and um, you may remember the you know, the motto at the time for the product was "Rip, Mix, Burn." Uh, so I worked on uh, the burning solution uh, for that, and uh, they had made the plan for iTunes was going to be able to burn audio discs, and they'd acquired this uh, company, uh, Sturman Company, to do DVDs, and so there's some you know uh, both a consumer level and a pro level DVD. Uh, uh, composition and, and obviously ultimately burning uh, tool. They'd completely forgotten about the desire to burn disks with files on them. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, uh, the iTunes was launched in uh, January of 2001. And um, shortly before that, uh, that is to say, I think the first conversation was in August. They went, you, you're going to do the disk burning software for Mac OS 9. The OS 10 guys, they're going to run the project because, you know, that's our, you know, new focus. And you'll just do your best at cloning their UI. Here's roughly what it'll look like. Um, we acquired some, uh, acquired a team of ex-Apple people who had been working on disk burning software. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had actually designed everything on OS 9. Um, for OS 10, which was coming. So they'd written a pthreads implementation for OS 9, um, things like that, and written to that. They then promptly discovered that the threads implementation that Mach offered and was wrapped by a, a pthreads layer on OS 10 was not as capable as their OS 9 version, which they were dependent on. And there was more or less no chance of them shipping the OS 10 version of their lower level stack on time mm-hmm. for that launch. So um, I became the sole guy on the project. And uh, that obviously ended up being something that had to garner Steve's attention. Um, the proposed UI was not something that I felt was forward-looking. Um, it was traditional. Um, that is to say, much like uh, there was an application called Toast that was very popular for that on classic macOS. You have kind of uh, you know, the two panes and the uh, you know, one is the store file browser and a button to like copy this over into the other pane and you, you know, kind of build up the sure. list that you want it and you click burn and the drawer opens and put your disk in, close the drawer and it burns. That was the model that they had in mind. Um, I had a counter proposal. Um, so I, I prototyped it and that, uh, that implementation was you stick a blank in and we treat it as if you were just stuck a blank floppy in. We ask you how you want to format it. And then we lock the, the door shut so it's treated like a floppy. You get a disk image on the desktop that's um, you know, got some additional markup to show that it's this mm-hmm. little disk that could be burnt. You drag files to it. And those files are actually copied. You can actually save files directly to it and things like that or download directly to it. Um, and then uh, when you want to uh, 
eject it, you're prompted to burn it, or you explicitly say, I want to burn it. Um, that's all backed by, you know, a RAM, not a RAM disk, a, a disk image. So, you know, I would go build the proper size disk image in, in the temporary folder and, and use that uh, behind the scenes. But it presented the, the kind of model that ultimately we should have had mm-hmm. for disks. And uh, we showed that to Steve, and uh, he liked it uh, a lot. So uh, we got to go ahead to finish it. Um, I worked that December. Um, every third day was an all-nighter. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had my then-girlfriend come into the office and do QA at night uh, because there weren't enough you know, QA hours in the day for the, the official QA people to do their job. Um, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it was it was pretty aggressive, and uh, I think from the approval of the prototype to the day of shipping was only six weeks. Whoa! It's, uh, yeah, fast turnaround. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Uh, the, the biggest cost on the project was the localization of the strings. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was literally a one engineer project. Um, I did drag in some other engineers for you know half a day's work on something that was a component of theirs that needed a patch to it, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it was a very, very rapid project. And um, uh, went through a process whereby, uh, in order to show it to Steve, um, I was slotted into other people's standing meetings. So, you know, uh, Johnny Ive or, or other folks have these standing meetings, and um, they kept moving me on the schedule uh, to take over one of those meetings, that person, whomever it was going to be, would bring him to my office and to see it. And so uh, he was, uh, his mood was being tracked. <laughs> and uh, they wanted him to see it on a good day. Uh, I, I think I slid three days before I finally um, uh, got, got his time. And he came to my office. Everybody in the management hierarchy between me and him was crammed into a 10 by 10. And, uh, you know, this is his first time seeing it. He, you know, kind of no input. Um, and so he had fairly visceral reactions to the UI. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was one point where I had used, uh, if you remember in those days, iTunes had a um, sort of like a UI of a, a blast door that's kind of circular opened up to reveal a, a nuke symbol, uh, which was the burn button. Mm-hmm. And uh, I reused that nuke symbol iconography throughout the, the software where I needed it. And uh, Steve was upset because that was designed uniquely for iTunes. And uh, you know, so you kind of you know, slam his fists on the table while he's talking about it. You could see the entire room of management lean away from him, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really quite telling. Um, and, but anyway, he, he, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we talked through the, the, the few things and um, he... Uh, he approved the project and uh, kicked something else out of the keynote to show it. Um, it went over very well in the keynote. The audience goes nuts. So uh, he, he almost seemed surprised if you watch the video by how nuts they went. Uh, I think everybody was hoping that it was continuously burning to disk in, in some kind of uh, packet uh, writing or something system way, which nobody ever really standardized. You know, some of those things got built, but they didn't really get uh, put together well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, and they should, certainly we would not have had that ready in time for launch. Um, so I was pretty happy with that experience. I would say uh, at the end of the day, the, the fun part was getting to work with Steve. 
uh, mm-hmm. briefly on it. Um, uh, yeah, that's uh, it's not something a lot of people got to do there. Sure. Or, you know, in the audience with him or not. Um, my periphery to him prior to that, um, and I remember being over at uh, Jeff Robbins' house. Uh, Jeff was the lead for iTunes. Um, and, you know, it was a, like a Friday night or something, and Steve had noticed that one pixel was wrong somewhere. <laughs> he was calling him at home, and uh, they all had to go into the office and fix it over the weekend. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, so tell us a little bit also, um, do you use much BSD outside of work? I know we've talked a lot about what you've done at Sony at Apple, but uh, do you use any personally around the house? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, my, my uh, house runs PFSense. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think my biggest problem with that, um, I bought a, uh, you know, a white box from Lanner. Um, you know, okay, a lot of people are using, you know, old watch guard fire boxes for this. So why don't I buy a modern machine from them and get ASNI and, uh, you know, get the quick assist hardware. Cause you know, I'll be forward looking at, in my choice. Um, the, uh, the problem is of course, I was trying to run it on top of ESXi, mm. uh, free edition. ESXi basically doesn't support anybody's hardware except very specific machines so like fan control didn't work temperature sensors didn't work and i don't know why it's a pretty standard wind bond chip sitting in that thing mm-hmm. um, none of that's there um so that you know it was pretty miserable for a, a while until um you know for bsd 10 based pfsense came along and i could finally on the efi only box i had um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and then even then, uh, you know, there isn't really, I would say, a good uh, fan and thermals solution in, in FreeBSD. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's still not quite there. Um, it's kind of disappointing. Uh, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the same, even, you know, like the LCD proc support in PFSense is not great. Um, you know, it's pretty standard. Uh, built-in display on this box, but it uh, doesn't work too well. And it's always these peripheral things that don't work in open source OSs, right? And everybody jokes sure. about mixed sound. Um, you know, I have a, a Raspberry Pi running a, a distribution called Volume.io, Volume.io, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, and uh, I had to spend a bunch of time, you know, recompiling some things and patching them in order to get it to work correctly. Um, and, uh, you know, so for all the jokes about Linux sound, you know, UBSD has got its problems too. Sure. In other areas. Um, PFSense, on the other hand, is, is an amazing, amazing product. Um, you know, with a different skin on it, you would pay a ton of money for an enterprise version of that mm-hmm. and not know what it, it's based on. In the same way that, uh, as far as I can tell, most enterprise storage these days is FreeBSD and, and some parts of ZFS with some tuning um, under the hood. And, you know, the enterprise customers have no idea what they're buying. Mm-hmm. I'm desperate to set up a free NAS box. I kind of run out of uh, run out of space on my uh, old in front ready NAS box. Yep. And it, it of course is uh, you know based on a Spark chip. It is incredibly slow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time to retire that bad boy. <laughs> well, it's the early one, right? Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, it's it's time to move on. And there's another project that that uh, you know it's open source, and so it has its rough edges. You really have to be dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I could pay, you know, uh, 
a company like Ag Systems a lot more than a home user should pay for the size box I want to put together. Um, in, in all fairness, I'll call myself a data hoarder. Um, I don't see any reason not to just buy some more hard drives and have all the data that I've ever had, um, more or less. Um, but so, like, you know, uh, the IX uh, FreeNAS Mini or TrueNAS Mini. I forget what FreeNAS Mini is the small one, yeah. FreeNAS Mini, yeah. It's a beautiful box, but that's not, not what I'm looking for. But I've already had the four drive array and I want to go bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, figuring out what kind of chassis to use, what motherboard to use, what works well and what doesn't work. Oh, what, uh, you know, everybody says you use super micro boards, but not one of the X11s because those are Skylake and Skylake doesn't quite work yet for using A, B, or C. Um, uh, you know, it's all too rough edged. Mm. And I think there's a, a lot of opportunity to, to smooth that out and get some more users. Um, you know, I, I know that when I finally do get a box built, um, I'm going to be dealing with oddities on like time machine support. You know, we're mm-hmm. mostly a Mac based household, uh, going to my long Apple history. And, uh, you know, it has to be spouse compatible. Um, you know, <laughs> everything has to work. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, there isn't a lot of room for complexity. You know, I was out of the country and we had a power outage and I had to walk my wife through why the UPS was beeping. Um, I'm like, is the power out? Yeah. Well, that's why it's beeping. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, she's in the medical field. And this, this stuff's not what she does, right? Um, so walking her through how to orderly shut down ESXi. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'd set things up, but I hadn't finished scripting everything. You know, my career is not DevOps, uh, shall mm-hmm. we say, so or any kind of operations. So, you know, I know how to do those things. I just don't, I haven't really afforded the time for every little project that I should have. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stuff, God, I wish it were out of the box. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think we all have those endless frustrations around the house. Um, sure. You know, geez, I bought the wrong UPS. So, no software in the world can talk to it except mm-hmm. his own Windows-based software, which is a non-starter. Uh, what? Why has nobody reverse engineered the protocol? You know, it's yeah. it's, it's not encrypted, so it shouldn't be too hard. Um, there are lots of these kind of frustrations, and that's you know the leading edge of trying to have your own home lab. I mean, I've got a rack in the closet. Okay. <laughs> that's not normal. Uh, well, granted, half well in this perfect. audience, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. But both Chris uh, and I have server farms at our house. Well, yeah. sure. um, but we're not everybody. Half of it's the stereo, right? You know, we remodeled, so it was like, okay, let's get all the things into a closet together. Mm-hmm. Um, and and only then do you discover, oh, you know, it's just enough of a Faraday cage that the things like the game consoles, Bluetooth doesn't actually reach into there. Sure. <laughs> you know, forehead slapping. There's no way to pre-flight that. Um, you know, the cooling didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, the closet door is now open two inches all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not good. I got to fix that. But, you know, uh, there's no specialist for this stuff really to be had. I had a hard time wiring the house uh, when we did that. You know, low voltage contractors don't do CAT 6A. You know, you mm-hmm. have to commercial for that. Um, you know, we went through, we're, we're San Francisco based. So went through, you'd think you should be able to find a low voltage contractor in, in this town that knows how to, you know, run a, a fluke DTX 1800 to actually certify that the cables are providing proper signal levels. Uh, 
oh yeah, I've got a fluke tester, they all say, and they mean a continuity tester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, guys who like have done wiring for wineries and stuff were in this place and, and failed out of our, our, uh, our interviews with them. Um, all very hard stuff to do um, and could be easier. Definitely, um, I, I want to pick on uh, uh, FreeNAS as being very hard to set up um, and plan for. Uh, I think PFSense is getting there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you can take some of the setup worries out of uh, FreeNAS by reading my book on ZFS. <laughs> right. Well, I well, I should be reading books like that, and and I have, you know, done my share of reading it. Um, that's the wrong level of information, mm-hmm. right? I'm talking about like what what hardware do I buy? How do I build sure. it? What's supported today? Why is it not supported? Right. You don't want to buy something that's three years old, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose. Everybody who's doing this on the cheap does, right? But like, I want to buy something that's going to last a little longer. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to nice one, nice new hardware with, with mm-hmm. something I know will be enabled over time. Um, you know, like I don't have a 10 gig switch in the house because oh. they're way too loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be nice to have something with, you know, 10 gig support. Sure. Right, so I can upgrade to that over time as those switches come down in cost and, and temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- those are those are the kind of things I look for when I'm, I'm making a, a long-term purchase. Right. Well, if you're going with FreeNAS, you're not really going to use the graphics chip. So the fact that you know the Skylake graphics chip isn't really supported shouldn't be too big of an issue. Yeah. Right. Usually they're I, headless. Right. I mean, if you go read the FreeNAS forums, there's there's you know several discussions of things in the current. Uh, Supermicro X11 motherboards for Skylake that don't work, mm-hmm. right? Onboard uh, NICs don't work, and uh, you know who knows some other things. Um, even though Jones speaking, Supermicro boards work better. And that probably has something to do with IX systems using Supermicro uh, as their OEM mm-hmm. uh, for most of their stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, the community I think needs to get the attention of companies like Intel a little bit more and a little earlier. Um, in terms of getting that support in place. Yeah, well, with Intel, we get pretty good support on network cards, but not on Wi-Fi yeah. or graphics or other things mm-hmm. that are a different team at Intel that apparently don't even know we exist or something. Yeah, right. right. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't care if the Wi-Fi doesn't work <laughs> or the graphics chip, as long as I get you know serial out that's necessary to run the mm-hmm. thing. But the um, NIC kind of needs to work. NIC, yeah. NIC should work. Yeah. Um, but there were, I, I don't remember all the mm-hmm. issues that were on there. Some other ones that were just made it a complete non-starter. Um, some system management stuff, it was thermal right. or fan or I don't know what it was. Didn't work either. Yeah. I'm, I'm spoiled because I, I have the server grade super micro stuff. So you manage the fans through the out of band management stuff. So, right. so you can use IP my tool in FreeBSD to turn the fan up and down, but there's no sure. native way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't really work yeah. for the white box tower you built, right? Um, yeah, no, that doesn't. I mean, I, more or less, I have to write a driver for that thing of some kind, even though a driver is not the mm-hmm. right layer, because mm-hmm. um, the thermal stuff is not handled clean. There's no clean architecture for it in the system. It's sure. If you go look at, um, you know, my my um, my lantern box most closely resembles the WatchGuard fireboxes everybody uses. So if you go read the PFSense forums, there's a handful of people who, uh, you know, do all the work there. Um, and 
you know, run this weird command line tool to talk to the Winbon chip to, you know, do what you need to do. It's not built into some nice architecture that abstracts it like, you know, the, the other uh, kinds of components are abstracted. Um, it just seems like a glaring hole to me. Yeah, there's um, a... Is it on every hardware, right? There's a whole discussion going on with the same thing for trying to get some kind of sensor framework in FreeBSD for just reading sensors, not even controlling the fan, but just knowing the temperature. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you even look at what's, you know, what's LM sensors mm -hmm. and stuff like that. None of that's great. You know, um, you look again at something like uh, OS 10 and uh, IO kit and their, the registry they have uh, in the IO registry, it's way cleaner. Um, if that kind of stuff. I have no idea how, how a detail like that's handled on windows. Thank God. But <laughs> um, I'm Better sure off not knowing <laughs> still, you know, cleaner because they have all these different hardware support. Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So they, they've got to do something there. Um, yeah. Oh, well, anything else you want to add as we wrap it up here? Uh, I, I mean, other than I love the show. Thank you. Uh, okay. Well, great. We appreciate uh, it. You guys, uh, you guys end up on, you know, my, uh, my headphones as I go do a midnight walk or, pre-midnight walk in order to wear off the extra calories if I ever did it in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I listen to you uh, more than I, I watch mm -hmm. the video. Sure. Uh, just kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. A lot of people uh, do that, I think. Yeah. You know, when we used to do tutorials, and we probably still would do some if we had some, uh, we moved to putting those at the very end because a tutorial of me doing something mm -hmm. on the screen is not very fascinating when you're only listening yeah, in the car or something. <laughs> Right, right, yeah, and I'll have the same. I'm gonna have a, a longer commute now instead of you know 25 minutes. It's gonna be over an hour, so uh, yeah, uh, maybe I'll be a watch video because apparently we're one of those evil companies that has the buses with mm -hmm. the Wi-Fi. Ah, okay. Although you know, for all they pick on techies, I think it's Genentech is the largest number of buses that come through San Francisco. Uh, it's employees. Uh, yeah, I keep seeing the GoPro one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got a, a, a shuttle bus as well. Anyway. Cool. Yeah. Well, hey, well, it's been great <laughs> talking to you, Alex. And of course, we wish you all the luck at the new job. And uh, mm -hmm. hopefully, we'll be able to run into you in conferences in the future. Yeah, I hope if so. The, if they'll let you out, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, they may not let me out, but I might might send myself. Uh, you know, I'm, like like we just said, you know, I'm avidly trying to use this stuff at home. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think you'll you'll find me around. I think we got to meet BSD coming up this next year. So uh, yeah. we have to see you out there. Or if you can get out to yes. Canada, that's an even better one. Yeah, Canada sounds like the yeah, real one. It's mm -hmm. pretty much and, the biggest uh, one. I haven't been able to go. Um, I did you know, send somebody from my team who was you know, closer uh, in Canada already to it uh, when I was at Sony. But uh, yeah, I do, do want to get out there sometime. Okay, well, great. We'll, we'll, look, we'll look for you down the road. I was say, uh, I'll do, say the same thing to you guys to say to every other conference. Geez, wouldn't it be nice if this conference were in, say, Tahiti? Well, right? there was talk of a Meet BSD in Hawaii or something. I don't know what happened to that. Actually, we just did a C++ standards meeting in Hawaii, uh, in Kona. And it's actually much cheaper uh, than, than most of the other things that uh, I'd gone to mm -hmm. for work uh, to go there. Um, you know, it's not the uh, expensive part of the islands. Well, we'll have to arrange that maybe for the next big anniversary. I think that was like a 20th anniversary thing they talked about. No, I think it was just uh, Matt Olander talking. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it could have been that too. Matt and I yeah. think alike. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, I'll push him on that and be like, how about that Hawaiian mm -hmm. conference? This is my stock joke about uh, the Euro LVM. Is, uh, isn't, isn't uh, you know, uh, 
Vanuatu part of Europe? Uh, right. We did uh, Malta for EuroBSD Con a couple of years ago. That was very temperate. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. All sound like mm-hmm. fun places to go. Yep. You know, I'm, I'm always happy to go to a conference room in, in the San Jose area, though, of course. So, uh, you'll see me at the EuroBSD um, again. Yeah, oh. the next FreeBSD thing around there will be the file systems and storage technology Usenix in February. Mm-hmm. It's in Santa Clara. Cool. Yes. Or something like that. Mm hmm. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for spending the time yes. with us today, Alex. We really appreciate it. I know this is kind of the weird week in between holidays and usually in people are pretty busy. Like, squeezed right in between jobs when I'm okay to yeah, talk. So. Uh, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, of course, yes. you guys. Thank you. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much again. Okay, hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Oh, we're so glad that Alex is able to spend the time mm-hmm. talking to us about this, and he's he had this weird opportunity where he was in between jobs and he could talk about some of these yes. things. So Before he goes from that was quite awesome. behind the great firewall That's of right. Sony to the great Cupertino firewall. That's right. That's right. So, again, that was really cool. So we, we actually have quite a bit of Beastie Bits to get to today since this is kind of a holiday episode and we had a long interview, so we're going to hop into those in just a moment. But before we do, of course, we want to mention another sponsor this week, which is going to be DigitalOcean, which a uh, website for that, obviously, DigitalOcean.com, where uh, maybe you have some time off this week. If you're watching us during the holidays and you got some days off at work, maybe it's time to go spin up a droplet there. Try out FreeBSD in a VM or OpenBSD in one of their VMs. Or I guess now, uh, was it Dragonfly was the last one we saw a video for? Uh, NetBSD. It was NetBSD. It was NetBSD. So Dragonfly is the one that hasn't made it. But being so close to FreeBSD, I wouldn't expect it to be any harder. I I would expect it's very doable. So uh, definitely need to go try that out. And when you go sign up on their site and make your account, don't forget to throw in that coupon code FreeBSD Mm -hmm. now, which will give you that $10 credit. So you can pretty much uh, run their low-end VM for two months without paying anything mm-hmm. for it with a terabyte of transfer for a month and it's backed by SSDs and just all kinds of awesomeness. I'm so not sure how they managed to do that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a pretty good, pretty sweet mm-hmm. deal they have going on there. So definitely jump on that while you get a chance. But uh, if you talk to anyone over at the DigitalOcean side, be sure you tell them that you heard about it here on BSD mm-hmm. Now. I know we would appreciate that. Yes. Okay. So are you ready to hop into these BSD Yeah, we got lots of them. Okay, well, go ahead and I guess I'll, I'll start off the first mm-hmm. one here, which was uh, we wanted to commemorate. We didn't get to it last week, but uh, Tuesday, December 20th, 2005 was the release date of the very first BSD Talk podcast. That's a Will mm-hmm. Bachman, of course. And uh, just congratulations, man. That's a 20 or a 10-year anniversary there. Gosh, I almost yeah. said 20-year. La, but 10-year anniversary. Still a long yeah, time. Yeah, and uh, with their newest one being episode 260, uh, they're still a good ways ahead of us. They're still ahead. We're going to catch up, though, man, unless you start doing We'd, weekly. We're, well, even even two years from now, we still won't be cut up. Oh, it's like man, in three years, if they only do a couple more episodes, we still won't be cut up. That's right. That's right. So, well, we're going to follow in mm-hmm. his footsteps if we can Indeed. and keep on trucking with these. Maybe we'll get up to that 260th episode as well. But, yeah, keep up the good work. Well, that's mm-hmm. awesome. All right, so what's the next one you have here, Alan? Some kind of patch? Yes, like. uh, so this is a patch that was uh, talked about at the VBSDCon uh, back in, was it September? Uh, but this is TCP fast open support, uh, server-side support, uh, ready f- to go into FreeBSD. And it's got a bunch of positive reviews already, so it should land shortly. Uh, basically, TCP fast open allows, so when you uh, are constantly connecting to a web server, 
you know, you open a connection, request a file, close the connection, and then maybe 30 seconds later ask for a different file or something. Uh, currently, you mm -hmm. have to do the whole three-way handshake both ways, and that makes it take longer. Uh, with TCP fast open, after the first time you've connected to a host in recent memory, uh, you get a cookie, and when you reconnect, you can use that cookie to skip part of the setup phase, uh, and mm -hmm. it means you can reconnect. Uh, when you're subsequently making connections to the same host, you can do it more quickly. Nice. Yeah, nice. so uh, yeah, this is the cool. server side of it that you can, uh, I think you, their test setup uh, uses it with Nginx uh, as a web mm -hmm. server, and then they have clients testing from like OS X and uh, Linux and so on, uh, and gets that all working. Uh, once that's uh, in and gets, uh, it should get MFC'd to 10.3 possibly before that release. Okay. Uh, and um, once that's all in and ready, maybe they can start work on the client side. That's right. Oh, that'll be neat mm -hmm. to see that land. Okay, so this next one we have here is a website called OpenBSDJumpStart.org. We wanted to pass this along. It looks like it's yeah, slides it's, from kind of a presentation. Slides from a conference or something uh, posted about two days ago, mm -hmm. and it's just basically very quickly walking you through, you know, the history of OpenBSD, why you would use it. You know, it's where things like OpenSSH, SMTPD, mm -hmm. NTPD, BGPD, OSPFD, Libre, uh, SSL, Mandoc, PF, etc. come from. Uh, and I have a link to the innovations page where OpenBSD has a list of the other things they've done. Uh, let's talk about the release cycle and the version numbers, the different flavors like release and stable and so on, uh, how easy it is to install it, um, how to set up the networking, uh, you know, with the examples here, how to set up your routing, how to make it happen at boot time, all that kind of stuff. Um, basically, just a, a short set of slides that walk you through everything you would need to do to go from not using OpenBSD to have a fully working machine in a nice, nice. Uh, slide presentation. Should uh, walk through this and make a FreeBSD version. That'd be cool, I think. We should. I guess that's it's a really nice looking site, and it's just mm -hmm. you just give somebody that address and done. Like there yeah. you go. Okay. Well, let's see. Next up here, we have uh, we want to point you to a commit. It looks like hardware accelerated iSCSI has landed in FreeBSD. So this is actually already gone mm -hmm. in. Uh, it's like what uh, day after Christmas, so the twenty sixth. Yeah, landed. this is for the uh, Chelsea. Uh, I think it's gig or ten gig uh, cards, the CXGBE mm -hmm. driver, uh, and it uses the TCP offload engine that's built into the network card. So the network card has an extra processor, uh, and you basically offload a bunch of the work into the NIC. And uh, this is gives you, you know, lets you do iSCSI stuff uh, over TCP uh, and letting the NIC do most of the work. Hmm, okay. That sounds pretty mm -hmm. cool. So, you know, if Let's you're uh, doing, a, if, you know, if you're building an iSCSI server, using this NIC and mm -hmm. this uh, hardware offload means you get that much more performance uh, with less CPU sure. time and so on. So okay. that's uh, interesting development there. Definitely. So next up here, we have a link uh, to Reddit, actually, where we want to show you if you're running Dragonfly BSD, we have a user who posted instructions. So if you're running under QEMU or KVM, you can now get full HD resolution of Dragonfly BSD. So there's some uh, commands mm -hmm. and some perks there, some things you may need to know, so you can get that up. Yeah, apparently right. you cheat and use the VMware uh, XF86 driver, and then with mm -hmm. that you can get the full, you know, 1920 by 1080 resolution even under uh, Virtual Machine. That's nice. Mm -hmm. That's nice. 
Now, this one was interesting to me uh, about a Lumos. The developer over there has been working on porting the FreeBSD bootloader to replace their old uh, Grub Pre-2 version. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he's made some improvements to block caching in the bootloader. So that's yeah. uh, neat to see that they're doing that. So uh, Thomas has been working on porting the FreeBSD bootloader over. Uh, in the process of hearing about that, I mentioned to him on Twitter about the ZFS boot environment menu that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. And he's since integrated that. Uh, in a slightly different way than we do it on FreeBSD, but uh, we've pulled some of his improvements back, and he spotted a couple of uh, small bugs in the fourth code uh, and so mm-hmm. on um, when we were in, in my implementation that we've pulled in the fixes for that. Uh, but the way Illumos boots is it basically reads this big, like, two or 300 megabyte um, fat, like, DOSFS uh, USB hmm. stick that has their kernel image and a bunch of other stuff in it. And... Interesting. He found the performance in the FreeBSD loader to be really slow for that. Like it would take like 15 Sorry. minutes to finish reading that 300 megabytes or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he built, uh, improved the B cache uh, that's been built into our loader for a long time, but it was kind of weird. And uh, especially for ZFS, it assumed you only ever had one disk because that's all UFS mm-hmm. ever did, right? Uh, whereas right. with ZFS, you might have eight. Um, and it, for some reason, the B cache that was there never you was n- didn't turned itself off if you were booting off a CD. Uh, but anyway, oh, so he implemented a new B cache that's a little straight, more straightforward hashed based cache, uh, and mm-hmm. it's uh, made a big difference because it works for the the CD drive as well. So uh, mm. under doing uh, IPMI and doing a virtual CD drive from my desktop. Uh, even over my local LAN, it lowered the time it takes to load the kernel as part of the boot from 27 seconds Ooh. to 7 seconds. So I, I have that. high hopes that this will solve the problem of when I'm IPMI booting off a CD to a server in Australia, it won't take mm-hmm. like 11 minutes like it takes now. It'll be much, much faster. Ooh, I really, really want yeah. that. We need that. So we need those changes merged yes. now. Uh, <laughs> but the interesting thing is, you know, that was basically a problem Grub didn't have, I don't think, mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, well, now that we're using the BSD yes. loader again, though, it uh, nice to have this. So, slot. yes, this hopefully will be able to shave, you know, uh, a good number of seconds off the time it takes to boot uh, FreeBSD, uh, especially, mm-hmm. you know, after the menu when it's, you know, the little twiddle comes up as it's like kernel symbols, yeah, et cetera. The kernel. All that, it speeds that up a lot. Uh, so we're looking yeah. forward to getting that in as well. Great, great. Okay, well, next up we have a blog post about a FreeBSD user working at Microsoft is talking about Microsoft's shift to open mm-hmm. source. Anything particular on that one you want to mention? Uh, no, especially just uh, talking about the change of the culture over at Microsoft and mm-hmm. uh, just the advantages on both sides to it and so on. It's just interesting article. Okay. Uh, you know, he even talks a little bit about as a guy that's so into open source, why'd you go work at Microsoft? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so on. But yeah, it's just an interesting okay. blog post and had something to do with BSD, so I pointed at it. Okay. So also we want to bring up uh, FOSDEM's coming mm-hmm. and there's going to be the BSD CG exam taking place. So we have a link to the schedule where that's happening and then also a link to the full schedule yes. for uh, the BSD tracker. Yes. From, so uh, FOSDEM 16. When does when is that FOSDEM is, that is in Brussels, Belgium, uh, January 30th and 31st. Okay. Uh, so, okay. so it's yeah. about a month. Uh, Belgium is easy to get to from anywhere in Europe and not particularly hard to get to from anywhere else either. Uh, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there's FOSDEM is a huge open source conference. Uh, and yeah, if you're going to be there, you can uh, on Saturday, you can actually take the PSD associate uh, exam, which is just mm -hmm. like a hundred question, multiple choice exam you take on paper. Uh, so it's nothing too scary. Uh, and it covers all of the BSDs, FreeBSD, NetBSD, Open, Dragonfly, etc. And yeah, I think it's uh, definitely nice. something people should look at. And then, yes, uh, as part of FOSDEM, there is a dedicated BSD developer room, uh, which will be all day on Sunday. And uh, it has a series of talks scheduled. Uh, there will be talks about you know Edge BSD, um, Typeware kernel virtual memory access, which is uh, you know using Dtrace and so on to figure out what's going on in the kernel. Um, Jean Sebastian will be talking about the new graphic stacks and how people can contribute to the graphic stack on FreeBSD so we can get, mm -hmm. you know, those Skylake drivers. Um, Roger Monet will be talking about uh, FreeBSD Zen uh, with some other people. That'll be cool. Um, a developer from Haiku OS is wondering if Haiku could ever be a BSD. Uh, Bernard Spill will be talking about LibreSSL and OpenSSL on FreeBSD. Uh, there'll be a talk from ElectroBSD. And then Baptiste will be talking about reproducible builds uh, of FreeBSD packages. And I will be talking about ZFS. Nice, nice. Well, that should be a good mm -hmm. conference. So if you can make it out to that, you should try and do mm -hmm. so. Okay, well, next up, uh, we need to let you know that the OpenBSD snapshots of 5.9 are now available. So if you want to start playing around with the latest and greatest Bleeding Edge, mm -hmm. you can now do that. Yes, they've had quite a few hackathons, uh, so there's lots of interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see here. So next we have uh, some notes now on making the BSD license version of GREP faster. Mm -hmm. so what's up with that? Uh, so it's interesting. It references a slightly older mailing list post where... Uh, the author of GNU Grep, who happens to be a FreeBSD user, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> wrote up some notes of his based on how he made GNU Grep that fast. Uh, but then uh, the author of this post here, uh, Robert Graham, uh, talks about some additional things and just uh, things that are slightly different now that, you know, compared to a couple of years ago, 10 gig networking is a thing. We have CPUs with giant L3 caches now. Uh, you know, we have a lot more RAM and so on. So a bunch of uh, different things to consider to make sure that we get the most out of the grep. Uh, one of the interesting ones is looking at the AVX text instruction that's built into the modern Intel processors that can actually mm -hmm. process 16 bytes of text in a single clock cycle. That would be an interesting right. optimization to make grep really fast. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things he also talks about is uh, even a simple tool like WC uh, that does word count, uh, might actually be significantly improved with uh, some of the ideas he has here. Oh, that'd be neat. It's always neat mm -hmm. when they go back and improve these old utilities yeah. like this. Uh, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of information there if you're uh, interested, and he has a little summary at the end. Okay. So what's this about Intel looking for somebody? Mm -hmm. It looks like a network software yes. engineer? Yes, so uh, Intel has a job posting here. They're looking for someone to work in their... Uh, the networking division of their platform application engineering group uh, mm -hmm. and basically work on FreeBSD uh, and mostly FreeBSD working with uh, building products and working on the FreeBSD reference driver uh, and mm, nice. supporting customers that are utilizing the Intel wired Ethernet products uh, and drivers based off the FreeBSD reference driver. Uh, 
okay. responsibilities include engaging and assisting customers through the design of the products and they have uh well the stuff they're looking for you know they want somebody with uh two or three at least two or three years of networking software development and some experience with configuring and debugging on on bsd and so on uh the ability to decode physical bus traces with ethernet or pcie and so on but if you're interested mm -hmm. and would like to work uh this particular one is in poland uh mm, okay. then uh, you should check this out yeah we need a bsd now listener to get that mm -hmm. job and you know make noises about bsd all the time yes. there that's awesome Okay, so did you watch Die Hard this Christmas? I know it's a Christmas movie for a lot of mm -hmm. us. Well, we have the uh, Die Hard FreeBSD boot screen, the tribute yes. there. You can uh, go to this link, grab the boot file, and set loader logo, logo equals to tribute in bootloader.conf, and there you go. You'll be set. Yeah, uh, so there was, uh, there was a version that shipped in FreeBSD 9.2 because that's the version that uh, appeared on the screen in the actual movie. Um, mm -hmm. But... Things have changed in the loader since then, and so Devin did up a uh, a new version that will cleanly apply onto, uh, you know, your FreeBSD 10 or 11, uh, and uh, yeah, you just drop this file in your uh, slash boot directory and set that variable, and uh, the beastie will disappear from your uh, from your boot menu, and instead it will look like the uh, the one from the Die Hard movie. So when I reload my laptop, I may need to grab mm -hmm. that because I'm still using Grub on that because of the jelly yes. encryption. So as soon as you get me that patch, this may be what I need to put on there for the logo. That would be really Nakatomi cool. Socrates. Right. Said level right. central core. Okay, we have uh, feedback and questions to get to, but of course, before we do that, we want to mention the last sponsor this week, which is going to be Tarsnap, and you can go to tarsnap.com slash BSD now mm -hmm. to go ahead and download your client and start doing your encrypted backup. So New Year's is just around the corner, 2016 is almost here. If you ignored us all year and didn't go get your backup set up, well, you need to fix that going into 2016. Yep. It's time to right a wrong. So uh, again, go to tarsnap.com, create your account. Put a few bucks in there. You'll be surprised how long that mm -hmm. lasts you because you're not uh, sending the same data over and over again. Everything's deduplicated. You're only sending the bits that changed. And, of course, it's, as always, fully encrypted. Yes. So you don't have to worry about anybody getting your stuff on the remote end. So great place to back up all your very important files, documents, and anything else that uh, you value and don't want to potentially lose. Yes. Let's make so, uh, uh, 2016 the year that no BSD person lost any files. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So definitely check it out today, guys. Tarsnap.com. And uh, let us know You know if you have a success story or if it saves your bacon in some way. I like hearing those stories, mm -hmm. too. So send those in. We appreciate that. Okay. So first up, we have Jeremy who writes in. He says, hey, guys, I've become a listener of the podcast recently, and I have really been enjoying the show for the last few months. It's moved into my must-listen section. Well, we're glad to hear that. He said, I recently finished converting the last of my home servers to FreeBSD, and I am thrilled with them. I started out being an all-Linux uh, back in the late 90s, added OpenSolaris five or six years ago to start using ZFS, and now I've converted everything to FreeBSD. I back up from my main public server to my storage server every night, and I wanted to use rsync, but now that I've gone 100% FreeBSD and ZFS, I wanted to start natively moving snapshots over and take advantage of the lower overhead of using ZFS send and receive. My main hiccup was that all the examples I've seen using ZXFer, ZSXFer, or raw NFS send and receive, or I assume you mean yep. ZFS send and receive, 
require that I SSH as root. I don't do that. No. He said, but uh, which is a no-go in my book. So he said, I took some time and set up doing something without using root all on the receiving side. I wrote it up what I did and thought it might be of interest to you and other listeners. And then he gives us a link to his blog. says, thanks for the show. So, yeah, he has that here. But, yeah, there are ways yeah, to do it without um, opening up root SSH access. It's in the FreeBSD handbook. I put it there. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, That's right. Let me just take a quick look at what he did. Mm -hmm. uh, right, ZX for... Like ZFS allow commands, I'm sure, in there. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I did the ZFS allow user mount. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, uh, I definitely don't have root do anything. Uh, as is the default on yeah. FreeBSD, none of my servers it is even possible to SSH as root. No, I've actually never had to turn nope, that I, off. I refuse to do box. it. If, <laughs> if there was some reason I had yeah. to, I would fix it. <laughs> I find another way to do it, yep. right? Uh -huh. So, well, thank you. Thanks for so much, Jeremy, mm -hmm. for sending this in. And, of course, we have the link here in the show yes. notes. So if you want to see how he solved this and he's using TSX for, to uh, make this work, definitely take a look at that. Because, yeah, if when at all possible, SSH root being on is bad. Not not a good thing. Uh, okay. Randomly, I was also helping somebody in the FreeBSD chat room earlier today uh, with the bug in ZX for when you're replicating Zvols, which... Apparently not enough people had done to find this bug before. Uh, oh, but I hope to have a new release of that coming out shortly. And that might be the last release of ZX for because I'm contemplating this new tool that be slightly different. Rewritten from scratch. Okay. I didn't write ZX for I just maintained it because the original maintainer went away. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't have much use for the whole uh, rsync feature that's built into it and uh, a couple other things, and I'd like to. Uh, it needs some architectural changes to be able to support things like ZFS resume uh, mm -hmm. and bookmarks. Uh, there's no ZFS replication script I know of that can properly use bookmarks. And I'd like yeah, to we fix don't. That. I did the architectural changes in Life Preserver to mm -hmm. do that, but then the bookmark support landed after. So uh, I have not gone back and put that in. I need to do that. Book, but I made the bookmarks changes. Bookmarks have been around a lot longer than than resumable. Well, I mean, I I mean the resumable, like working that hand in hand with bookmarks, because oh, okay. I want to do that all yeah. together. Like I've not gone back and added those yet, but it's on the list to do. But no, I got rid of the whole like recursive replication yep. thing. That um, yeah, ZXFer doesn't do that either. Uh, one of the things I would like mm -hmm. to do for ZXFer is say, you know. When it's manually doing the recursive, saying, hey, see that data set there? Let's not replicate that one in the middle. Oh, so you don't have, like, the excludes? Yeah, I don't have the... excludes yet. Okay. Uh, I need to add okay. that. And, but uh, one of the bigger things is the new tool, which I've decided to call Zorro, um, mm -hmm. will have the snapshot management built into it as well. I have some mm -hmm. interesting ideas on how to do snapshot management better. So why don't I just get you to work on Life Preserver? It's all shell. Oh. Are you going to do this in uh, shell? Yeah. I could. I was contemplating trying to use like libzfs, but it's not a stable interface. So I think I'll probably just use shell. Okay. I was going to say, because we already have like all the snapshot management and scheduling, and it manages mm -hmm. cron entries and, and all that jazz. I'll have to it's take there. a look. The replication's there, and it's all right. shell. I'll have to so take a look. Maybe it's of interest. I've had a few other people recently send in a bunch Although of patches. Some, some of my uh, really good ideas require patches to ZFS first. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, wow. Well, that's only a couple. It can be worked around. Sure. Uh, the interesting problem there is like, well, how do you make a script that relies on features in ZFS that not everybody has yet. 
Although right, one of you have to detect the feature flag. Oh uh, well, this one because it would be a command line change. It's not actually a feature flag. Ooh. So one oh, of the okay. changes to ZFSI making is a new subcommand that tracks changes to the command line interface. So you can detect Ooh. new features, uh, okay. specifically. So when you're writing a script like this, yeah, you can go. You have this. You do not have. Yes, because one of the features that is in the beta version of ZX for uh, in my GitHub right now is detecting when the remote system doesn't have a feature flag that the source does mm -hmm. so that when you're replicating it knows hey don't try to copy you know the file system limit property because it doesn't exist on the other side and it'll just error out sure uh because oh, you know i have mixed versions of zfs in my infrastructure and mm -hmm. having to use the lowest common denominator kind of sucks <laughs> for sure uh, in for particular sure. it means the server that's the source doesn't get upgraded as much as it could whereas you know yeah. the, the big storage servers tend to be the ones i always want to run head on mm -hmm. you have other reasons why you need to update yes. them too so uh, yeah. so lots of interesting work going on there okay well we'll get into this next one so this is a super easy one from dan he says how and where can i get pcbsd on a disc well i'm glad you asked dan it's actually pretty easy so if, i assume you're talking about trying to buy one or get one printed and sent to you so go to freebsdmall.com that's probably one of the best places you can do it. Or if you come out to any of the conferences where either IMED or IX Systems has sent a booth to, um, usually they have discs they just hand out yes. there. So There's usually that's a whole uh, pile one way of them. to do it. Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, you could download it and burn your own or DD that to a USB stick or whatever. But uh, yeah, FreeBSD Mall is the other way to do it if you yep. want to just put this one uh, them. FreeBSD and PCBSD and uh, some mm -hmm. of the books and all kinds of good stuff books and you get swag yes, they, they have shirts and, shirts and too, hats so. and i think they have mm -hmm. like a little stuffed plushy beastie and everything that's right so you want to go check that out if you'd like to get mm -hmm. some uh free bsd based merchandise okay i'll let you read the next yes. one now so i did the first chris here. writes in about vms and FreeBSD. he says hello alan and chris I'd like uh, more tips on moving from a virtualized Linux VM setup to FreeBSD. Currently, I'm running Linux mm -hmm. KVM with a small individual VMs uh, for each different responsibility. Uh, one VM uh, for the web server, one for MySQL, one for Subsonic, etc. The VMs all have their hard drive images on an NFS share on his Synology NAS. Uh, while I could run FreeBSD under... VMs uh, on a Linux host in a similar fashion. I'm curious what you would uh, recommend. A single FreeBSD instance with uh, all my normally virtualized services running in separate jails, or maybe using uh, Beehive. You know, is uh, virtualizing small FreeBSD UFS-based instances under Linux a common or recommended practice? I think uh, yeah, FreeBSD uh, VMs under Linux is definitely very common. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually also common to run uh, FreeBSD under Hyper-V on top of Windows, uh, which is one mm -hmm. of the reasons Microsoft spent a lot of effort making sure that works very well. Anyway, this is uh, the hardware is an Intel NUC with an i5 and 16 gigs of RAM. Since I uh, have a beefy Synology with uh, 14 terabytes of storage, uh, I'm not that interested in ZFS right away, but I am interested in learning about the common tasks of managing FreeBSD. And I would just jail all those things personally. Just running it in a VM, that kind of makes me feel yeah. good to be doing the web server in a VM well, and the, the SQL in a VM and then subsonic in another VM. Like, Yeah, and uh, the biggest I, thing there is they don't have the ability to share leftover RAM, right? So with each VM, mm -hmm. you give it so much RAM, and if it doesn't use it all, it's kind of taken up. 
Whereas if you ran each, yeah. if you ran FreeBSD directly on the NUC, uh, and just put a jail for each of those uh, different services, then mm-hmm. they could all share all the resources of the box, all the CPU, all the RAM, and with none of the slowdown you get from virtualization. And, yeah, and you don't have to have multiple kernels yeah. and all that jazz. Yeah. No. Uh, and, you know, maybe not the example in his NUC because it doesn't have much local storage, but in your other mm-hmm. setup, uh, it means you could have ZFS with just a data set for each uh, jail, and it means you get the extra protection of ZFS there. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he's sharing everything over NFS, but yeah, you could do NFS shares yeah, you and can, those up yeah, jails you can too. Still like, there's no reason that. you couldn't do the same, but I don't know. Like, I think you may see a lot better performance if you do it that way too. Just ha- I wonder what the benchmark is, Linux, uh, doing VMs, uh, talking like the web server to the SQL server versus two jails doing it. Like, I wonder what that would look like. Jails would win by a lot. <laughs> By a lot, right? So I don't know what off you know the numbers. Although I think both head. of them would be so much faster than over an actual network that it wouldn't mm-hmm. matter. I don't know. It's hard to say. Probably not. But yep. either way, uh, just my personal preference. When I do all this stuff, it's not in VMs. Yes. Or in same here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next up here, we have Ben. He says, "Good afternoon, both. After years of dipping my toe in and not being too sure, I finally took the plunge and installed FreeBSD on a newly acquired ThinkPad T440. This is running a Haswell CPU and graphics, plus the infamous AC72060 Wi-Fi card. Which, uh, which with these, have presented their own challenges. It has been fun to jump in and use current while rolling a kernel with uh, Adrian's port of the Wi-Fi driver. It's been a fun project, and now I'm hooked on FreeBSD." And what better way to quench a thirst for more than to have such a great podcast each week? Well, thank mm-hmm. you. He said, I've been listening for the past month or so and really look forward to uh, new episodes. And having now listened to your most previous ones, I especially enjoyed the interviews with Adrian Chad and Brian Cantrell. Yeah, I think a lot of people have those as their Both favorite. of those will be on again. That's right. That's right. He said, I've got a couple questions I'd like to ask, though. One simple and one night not quite so. He said, I've heard a lot of people chatting on IRC or heard about people chatting on IRC, but I've not seen conclusively what servers and what channels general chatter is mostly on. It well, depends it really who depends you on what want to talk to. Uh, so on Freenode, there's the official you know, pound FreeBSD, uh, and that's mm-hmm. lots of users talking there. Uh, there's, uh, it's also where the FreeNAS channel is, uh, IOCage, uh, OpenZFS, PCBSD, etc. Uh, if mm-hmm. you're after specific developers and so on, on EFNet, there's um, BSD code, BSD, BSD dev, BSD ports, and BSD MIPS. Uh, so if you're interested in ports, BSD ports, MIPS, if you're interested in embedded like Raspberry Pis and uh, the Onion Omega and running it on mm-hmm. a little router, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, and then BSD code or BSD dev for uh, you know actually doing programming and uh, BSD docs if you're interested in documentation. I was going to say, too, because it relates to his second part of the question, but go to FreeBSD XORG on FNET as well. That's where a lot of the XORG developers are hanging out. It would be definitely the place to look if you are uh, going to try the Haswell uh, experimental branch and uh, try to somehow concurrently run Adrian's uh, 7260 patch alongside the Haswell patch to get Mm -hmm. all that working on your machine. Hopefully, both of those will just end up in the operating system soon, and you will be able to just run vanilla. Okay. Well, for the second part of his question, he says, with having a Haswell chip in my laptop, I'm interested in trying the i915 branch, but I'm not quite sure how to do it with my current system. I know I can clone the Git repo and do a make build roll, build kernel, etc., but since I'm running FreeBSD current, won't this screw around with my system? 
Do I need to somehow merge this with the current source and user SRC? And if so, how? I use SVN for updating the source or am I drastically overcomplicating it and misunderstanding the documentation? Thank you both and thanks for the great show. I would say you're overcomplicating this because the, the repo with the I-915 branch is complete. In other words, you can do a git clone of it and uh, just give it the dash B flag and check out the particular branch mm-hmm. that has that those changes. And it's the full repo of current. It lags a little bit behind, right. usually a couple weeks. So it, it current, might be a small downgrade. You'll like go back in time a week or two on the source, yeah. but that shouldn't really break anything. No, but then it would be the exact same process, the make, build, roll, build kernel, mm-hmm. make, install, roll, blah, 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 and then reboot, and you're up and running at that yep. point. Um, you shouldn't have to do any merges unless, of course, you're trying to merge in like Adrian's patch or if he has a different branch or something. Yeah. But uh, In that case, that, yeah, that gets a little more complicated. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, I don't know. Does Adrian post those patches? I think patch files I don't know. Uh, on Fabricator? I don't know exactly where they are. It might be on Fabricator or most likely on his GitHub, and then you would be able to yeah. extract that as a patch that you could then yeah. uh, try to apply over top of the i915 branch. Because I imagine well, I Adrian's imagine patches. They would apply. Yes, and I imagine Adrian's patches are smaller than the i951. Because yeah. the i915 ones all contain to a couple directories. Yes, and I imagine well so is the so. Uh, Intel NIC one. So, yeah. yeah. So they probably won't conflict <laughs> or whatever. So. Anyway, we wish you luck with that, Ben, and enjoy your uh, happy hacking. Yes, and we uh, around with we, this. we hope that very soon that laptop will be fully supported. Or if you're really lazy, um, PCBSD will have its January image coming out in a couple days here, right after. I'll probably announce it Monday, so what is that, the third? Something like that. It'll upload over the weekend, and that has all the Haswell stuff built in. That's cloned as of, like, yesterday. Right, so, so, so that's already built? Okay. It's building right now. Oh, so it's building now. I will. You know, I start them a few days before the first of the month. Right, and then I'll the, try there's, and a, there's a good question Friday. about you know throwing monkey wrenches in the works there. With it's like, well, did you want to try these couple of patches put together? It's like, how right, many patches right. can you juggle in one uh, experimental image there? <laughs> well, I've got quite a few pulled in now. Right, it's like, it's, how would you like the newer ZFSBE, the Gelly patch, and the B cache yeah. patch? And That's why I'm pushing you to commit some of these yes. soon, so I don't have to I'm, juggle. I'm I'm working on it because uh, <laughs> the most recent update I pulled in messed up the EFI loader stuff a little bit. Like there was some conflicts mm, there, okay. um, so I guess the fabricator patch is now uh, a little stale Which as one? well. Needs an update, but uh, the patch and fabricator for EFI. There's a DFS. second one now. That's cleaner yeah. or something. Yeah, I gra- that's the okay. one I grabbed recently. I reapplied that, but even that's now a little slow. Yeah. There were some changes that went into the boot one, I think, in the F5. Uh-huh. But anyway. Yeah, there's a lot happening in there. Guys, commit your stuff. Yes. Don't let Fabricator be the new place patches go to die. Commit it. Commit it. So get it in. All right. Yes. Sorry. So we will take our last question Last email now. from yeah, Matt about a donation to Foundation. He says, uh, mm-hmm. Alan and Chris, I just donated to the FreeBSD Foundation with the following note. Uh, says he donated because I love FreeBSD and I really appreciate the work that goes on uh, and the BSD Now podcast. While the foundation isn't affiliated with BSD Now, I think this is what Chris and Alan would have wanted. And yes, it is the best way to keep things happening. Uh, He just Mm -hmm. uh, says, I just wanted to let you know uh, how much I appreciate the podcast and the consistency with which the show is produced. We have never missed a week, so yes, that's pretty consistent. Doing good. <laughs> uh, even when you guys are... Of course, you say that, and I'll get hit by a bus yeah. next week and be in the hospital for three weeks or something. But, you know. uh, <laughs> even when we're traveling or during the holidays, we manage to still have a show for you. I uh, seem to have an uh, exciting and informative podcast every week. 
Uh, and further, I really appreciate that you're responsive to emails and don't mind pointing the rest of us uh, in the right direction from time to time. You know, it. Also, often it's just you know somebody's stuck and it's just like somebody knows that there's this link that I could send them and and it would solve mm -hmm. their problem. And sometimes uh, giving people that little you know two seconds of help can make a big difference. Sure. Uh, especially you know when that makes a difference between them uh, giving up, deciding it's too hard, and actually continuing with it. And that's why mm -hmm. I try to hang out in the FreeBSD chat rooms on IRC and guide people when I have a spare time. Yeah, not on there all day, yeah. but if you happen to catch me, I usually will respond. Mm -hmm. He says he, uh, he's glad to support the project with a community that's as engaged and helpful as the two of you are, and I'm looking forward to all of 2016. Well, great. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Matt. And, you know, we're ending with this one here, so I want to use this as an excuse to remind you guys who are watching live or if you catch it right as it comes out yes, uh, tomorrow. You know, there's still a day or so to get your donations in, not just to the FreeBSD Foundation, but OpenBSD or any of the other mm -hmm. projects. Um, if you haven't done it yet and you've been putting it off, try and get it in now so it counts for 2015. So all these organizations, especially if they need to do like 501c3 tax status here in the yes, States, uh, like, so can make that easier. So for the FreeBSD Foundation has a goal of getting 2,000 individual donations from regular people. Uh, and uh, they're currently at 1,458. So it'd be great if some more people go in there and make just even, you know, a small $10 donation or whatever, uh, just to increase the number of names on this list. Mm -hmm. uh, That's right. Get your name mm -hmm. on the list there. So please do that. If you have time and you can do it in the next day or two, get it in for 2015. If you're hearing this and it's already 2016, that's Get a head okay. start just on 2016. Donate. Yeah, donate anyway so that you're on the list for next mm -hmm. year. And then that's just one less thing you have to do uh, next year. You can check it off your uh, to-do mm -hmm. list. So uh, definitely do that. And we, of course, appreciate that. Uh, again, donating to any of the foundations is a good thing. Just help support BSD mm -hmm. and, you know, across the board. Okay, well, as we wrap up the show here, guys, uh, first of all, it's been a great 2015. Yes. Really looking forward to 2016 and all the exciting stuff happening. Can 11.0 launch soon enough? And well, yeah. Uh, the, I want. Oh, I know 10.3 is coming yeah, first, so the 10, but I want the Haswell stuff. 10.3 freeze will happen January 29th. Uh, okay, and so then the I think it's April 22nd uh, when all the commits to 11 will uh, require approval after that. So not okay, much John time to get stuff done. DRM guys, get those fixes in. We really want Haswell support yeah. in. I mean, if we can get Broadwell at the same time, we'll go for it. But okay, Haswell in like today and get to work yes. on Broadwell. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, of course, as we close the show, guys, we want to remind you, feedback at bsdnow.tv. Yes. That's the address. So send all the things there yes. so that we will see them and can take the appropriate action, whether it be a yes. reply via email, which... Sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. A lot of times I will sit on them and make sure that they get put in next week's yep. show so we can answer it on the air because I personally think that's more well, fun. And more and people get the answer. Everyone can benefit. Yeah, everyone can benefit from the answer. So do send stuff in there and don't be alarmed if you don't see a response right away. You just have to watch for next week's show and see if it made it in. And sometimes we get a little backlogged and there may be mm -hmm. multiple weeks where we're just kind of sprinkling comments in and whatnot. So please send in all your comments. Mm -hmm. If you have uh, questions, show ideas, or topics, you know somebody who needs to be interviewed for the show or you want to yes. volunteer uh, yourself, please uh, send that in as Indeed. well so we can get that scheduled. Or if you're just you know trolling around the internet and you find a cool story about something new that's happening in any of the BSDs or related to BSD in some way, send that in as well because we always find those interesting yeah. and a lot of times we'll get those worked into the show as yeah, well. Yeah, and especially yeah. if we miss something. It's like, hey, why didn't you talk about mm -hmm. X? Well, it's because you didn't email us. <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. So you need to uh, need to try and send that in. Or if you're working on a project or something that's on BSD and a new release comes out with some awesome new features, well, send that to yep. us so that we can pass it along because a lot of times people will be interested in that stuff. So again, feedback at bsdnow.tv. And uh, of course, uh, Happy New Year's, everybody. Indeed. And we'll look forward to talking to you uh, same time next week. Bye.